Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Hola y bienvenidos al especial Dead City Drive-In Sico de Mayo. The only podcast where the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms open a casino in your bowels because payback's a bitch. Come on, snake eyes. Daddy needs a new colostomy bag. Uh, soy Brandon Windish. Y yo soy Chris Holcomb. And we are the heads of programming in this here dead city. And in this episode decreed by the higher-ups. Our bosses. The drive-in gods. We have been tasked once again with programming a specially themed double bill for the ravenous hordes of mutants and madmen outside our projection room door. <laughs> Uh, dude, I don't mean to sound indelicate, but what the hell is that smell? Is that coming from you? The hell you say? Is that any way to speak to your primo amigo when he has provided a magnificent feast in honor of Mexican Independence Day? When our hermanos south of the border threw down the shackles of their Spanish oppressors and tasted freedom in the form of delicious nachos, tacos, and chimichangas. Well, I can't speak to taste, but it sure smells like those nachos, tacos, and chimichangas have already been through someone's digestive tract. Where the hell did all this food come from? Burrito gong! Burrito gong? That's the sketchy Tex-Mex joint in that old rusty Airstream tailor down by the, uh, the, the, the decommissioned nuclear power plant. Oh, so you know the place. Terrific, yeah. yeah. Look... The folks at Burrito Gong were having a Cinco de Mayo slash going out of business sale for seven bucks. You can have all the subpar Mexican food you can carry. And for three bucks more, they were handing out these piñatas. They said that there was something really special hidden inside. I mean, what deal, right? All in honor of Mexican Fourth of July. Only it's on the 5th of May. Chris, I always took you for a smart guy. Oh, thank you. But this might be the stupidest thing you've ever done. Thank you. Uh, wait, wait, hey, hey! Chris, Cinco de Mayo is not the day Mexico declared independence from Spain. That's the 16th of September. Cinco de Mayo commemorates the Battle of Puebla, when in the year of our Dark Lord, 1862, Mexico kicked the asses of a bunch of foppishly Frenchy froggy frogs. Well, oh, ho, 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 senor. <laughs> okay, and Cinco de Mayo is a much bigger deal in America than it actually is in Mexico. Sort of like how the uh, the real deal Ireland, Irish, and Ireland don't give a shit about St. Paddy's Day. Just an, another excuse for ignorant Americans to appropriate yet another culture in the name of getting shit housed. I've been living a lie. I am ashamed. Oh, no, okay, now buck up, little camper. Turn that frown upside down. It was a nice gesture, and I, I, I really do appreciate it, but it smells like rancid dog shit, and we have to get rid of it. And while we're at it, we don't really need this pinata, do we? Uh, listen! Do you smell something? 
Yes, I do, and I'm trying to get it out of the projection room before I projectile vomit all over your face. No, no, wait. Sounds like tapping. And I think it's coming from the piñata. Uh, I think you're right. Well, tear it open. Let's see what it is. (sighs) If whatever's in here gives me rabies, I'm not talking to you for at least a week. Well, will you look at that? This cloud has a silver lining. I knew those extra $3 were well spent. When's the last time you got a bottle of Mezcal in a piñata? A touche, but it's a $3 bottle of Mezcal found in a piñata that's been sweating it out on a rust bucket of a Tex-Mex food truck run by two shitty pasty white guys. Oh, and I forgot to mention, said food truck is parked right next to a derelict nuclear power plant. That qualifies as organic, right? You are so fucking bougie. Give me that! Come on, dude. So what if today's a bullshit American holiday? At the very least, we can take this bottle and acknowledge the great contributions the Mexican people have made to our country and hell, the rest of the world! Now I can drink to that, crack that bitch open! Smooth, smooth, with a hint of gunpowder and gasoline. I know. It's great, isn't it? I hear this brand is distilled from the concentrated urine of a professional wrestler, steroids and all. No, well, aren't we the lucky ones? Uh, Quick, give me another snort before I change my mind. I can't feel my face. Are we going up or down? Oh, no, you don't. You are not spacing out on me that easily. Handle your shit. Ah! I have just had a brilliant idea. Remember earlier when you said we should use today to acknowledge the contributions Mexico has made to the world? All right, get this. We program a showing of not one, not two, but Cinco. That means five. uh, Cinco driving features from south of the border. A celebration of Mexican drive-in cinema. What? A beautiful idea. I mean, that really touches me. Deep down in the pit of my... (laughs) 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 Yeah. It touched me too, little buddy. Now, go clean yourself up. Time is short, and we have uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco movies to program. Arriba! Well, here we are, Chris. Season four. Season quattro. It's our season (laughs) four premiere. We're starting a whole brand new onslaught of oral. That's A U R A L. Oral, not oral. I'm so excited to start the season off. Me too. Yeah, I've been waiting for this for weeks now. And this is a hell of a way to do it. Um, look, before we get into the show too much, maybe we should just get some business taken care of. Sure, some business. Yeah. Um, here's the deal, guys. Uh, we've got uh, an official Dead City Drive-In Patreon that you can now patronize. <laughs> yes. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash deadcitydrivein, and you can choose. There's all sorts of tiers up there. There's three different tiers. Mutant, uh, 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 Mad Men, and uh, uh, Maniac. 
are the three tiers. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily in that order, but here's the deal, guys. If you if you sign up for that, everybody's going to get their choice of a, a Dead City Drive-In barf bag. You get a glow-in-the-dark mummies uh, heart Dead City Drive-In holographic sticker. You get access to a bunch of behind-the-scenes content. Dude, it glows in the dark? Uh, yes. Oh, my God. Wait. I knew it was holographic, but I didn't know it glowed in the dark. Wait, did I say glow-in-the-dark sticker? I think you did say glow-in-the-dark. Oh, the dark. fuck. I didn't mean that. It's just holographic. Oh, okay. Sorry. Well, I guess we just lost everybody on that one. <laughs> but also, that's not it. In addition to all of the swag, bonus content, private community that you can be a part of, you will also get up to two brand new bonus episodes of Dead City Drive-In. Okay? We're talking feature or full-length episodes that can only be heard on Patreon. Yep. Horror game nights, uh, alternate movie dream casting, uh, remake double takes. We've got all sorts of fun things that we're doing. And also, we have bonus watch-along commentaries that you, the Patreons, get to pick for us to watch. It's a lot of fun. And, oh, I neglected to mention, everybody that signs up gets a shout-out on the show. And we're going to be yes. doing the patron shout-outs uh, at the end of the episode. So make sure you listen to the end. Yes. And you might just hear your name. Uh, we just launched the thing, and we're going strong, and we can't wait to see more of you guys up there. Uh, now, also, I should just say, you can write to us at uh, deadcitydrivein at gmail.com. You can find us all over the place. We're on uh, Instagram at deadcitydrivein, Facebook at deadcitydrivein. You know all of that shit, but guys, we love to hear from you. Rate and review the show. You know how this works. I don't want to have to keep saying this all the time, but I have to, apparently. That's what they're making me do. It's in our contract. They are twisting his testicles as we speak. <laughs> so, guys, that's that's it. I think that's it for our bit of business. One other thing. This oh, is our season okay. premiere, but by the time uh, we, we you know, this is out, we're going to be, I think, wrapping up. Uh, we have another show on our little burgeoning network here mm -hmm. uh, called Primetime Bitch. Primetime Bitch. <laughs> podcast where uh, our, our friend Jack and I, uh, my co-host Jack and I, watch every episode of Freddy's Nightmares and... Uh, talk about it for an extended period of time and lose our fucking minds but remember it's not about the nightmares it's about the freds you meet along the way that's very true so uh we're wrapping up our first season of that i think that ends uh our season finale is like in just a couple of days from this episode the ninth and we have a new season that's coming out but i don't know what the exact day is it's either going to be like the 23rd of may or like the 6th of june that's a pretty quick turnaround yeah well fuck it yeah why not let's just keep going you yeah know? go 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 we had a pretty quick turnaround with this season too that's so i true. like our momentum it's fun um all right that's it for business guys uh we've got cinco películas películas to program si, tonight películas. and um i'm ready to get into this shit how I about need, you i need to make sure that my películas are nice and fresh <laughs> are they I don't know, because I don't know what the fuck a pellicula is. And before we start, I'm going to just take a swig of this uh, irradiated mezcal. Mm, irradiated mezcal. Oh, yes. that's, that'll put tits on a dwarf. <laughs> okay. Like Bridget the Midget? <sighs> yeah, you know her? Uh, not personally, <laughs> but I'm familiar you want, with her. You want her number? I'm familiar with her work. <laughs> I think she's in one of the movies. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, shit. <coughs> All right. So, guys, here's the deal. Mexican cinema, Mexican genre cinema yeah, in that, particular. Yeah, let's be specific here. Yeah, because we're looking at, you know, drive-in style films just from south of the border. And I'll tell you, there's actually a surprising amount of, of wonderful. I shouldn't say surprising. I think that that's maybe a little reductive. Um, 
you, the more you dig, the more that kind of comes out. And there's even like periods where Mexican cinema was kind of like dead. Yeah. And even then there was some gems that kind of popped up at a time where there really wasn't anything going on. Yeah. I don't know. Do you do you mind if I talk a little bit about like the history of No, I'm curious Mexican as all genre? hell, man. You know, it's like I I have periodically through my cinematic adventures, travels, however we want to put that and everything, have come across quite a few Mexican movies and everything, but really I've never looked at Mexican genre cinema specifically and really kind of explored that. So, well, I think you, uh... I think we're living in a time now where, uh, like in this country, where some of the most popular filmmakers are actually Mexican filmmakers, Mexican American yeah, filmmakers. I think like... Almost like three years in a row, we had Mexican directors take Best Director at the Oscars. You're right. We had uh, 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 Alfonso Cuarón. Yep, who did Gravity and Prisoner of Azkaban and Children, Children of, of Men, Men and uh, Itumama Tambien. Yeah, um, and then you had. Uh, Inaritu, mm-hmm. Alexander Inaritu, mm-hmm. who did uh, The Revenant and also did, um, what was the other films that he's... Birdman. Didn't he did do... he do Birdman? Yes, he did Birdman. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes. And then, uh, I was going to say Benicio Del Toro. But that's, <laughs> and then that's, Benicio that's, Del Toro. That, he's not, no, he's Puerto Rican. <laughs> and we don't want to mix those up because Puerto Rico and, and Mexico are different. So, uh, Guillermo Del Toro. That's right. Who's... It's just sweeping the Oscars. Every yes. time we see an Oscars, he's there... You know, like, holy fuck, can you believe that the guy that made Blade 2 yeah. is, like, winning all every Oscar all the time? And Mimic. And Mimic. The, he, I mean, the thing about Del Toro is, is he's really pushed boundaries. I'm not a, the biggest Del Toro fan, and I, but, like, I love his aesthetic. I love what he has done for I would cinema. love to be able to spend some time in Bleak House. What's the Bleak House? Bleak House? It's, it's a house that he has out in L.A. Like, <gasps> oh, he doesn't yes. even live in it, but it's kind of like he's turned it into like an, an artist's... That's right. You know, I'm not going to say resort, but, you know, respite, a place where they can kind of get away from the world. And he's got like life-size statues of... Uh, I'm trying to think. He's got H.P. Lovecraft in there. He's got like an Edgar Allan Poe statue in there. All kinds of books and memorabilia and everything. And they all fuck. Really? Yeah, you can fuck them all. Like, but is this sort of like an after midnight sort of thing? Yeah, like, at you know, midnight sort of... it turns everything turns crimson in, in, into an orgy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fishmen. You can sleep with the fishmen. Fish fuckers. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. But that's the thing. Um, these are the, these guys are actually making extremely populist entertainment right now. Yeah. Which go figure. Um, but again, you know, great. It's great for the state of cinema in the United States because God knows we need some new voices. Uh, so that they can be castrated and make the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay, sorry. Wah, I know. Wah, wah, Shots wah, fired. Wah, 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 wah. Um, but look, we kind of wanted to do something a little different with these movies, and I think... Uh, well, we wanted to do something a little bit different for our season four premiere, man. That's very true. And also for ourselves, we like to challenge ourselves, and we, you know, I think that Mexican horror uh, was a little bit of a... I don't want to say a total blind spot, but I would say that we had a little bit of a learning to do. Yeah. And so it was fun to kind of dive into these. We had a couple of familiars and then a couple of newbies. And uh, it was a pretty cool experience getting to, you know, delve into this uh, uh, this genre yeah. uh, from that has a very distinct flavor. Definitely. And so... The point I'm saying, trying to make here is that we did not pick any Del Toro films. No. We did not pick any uh, Quaron films. We did not pick any uh, Inaridu films. These are a little more off the beaten path. And uh, Well, we actually literally kind of went down to Mexico because I, you know, I think a lot of the, the more uh, well-known fare that's been put out by these directors 
have a very kind of Hollywood veneer to them and everything. Sure. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to really kind of dive into what are the types of movies that these directors were watching when they were kids that kind of really warped their sensibilities and made them into the artists that they are today. And of course, our criteria is always what would play great on a drive-in screen. Absolutely. The Mexican film industry, and, and I apologize Come if this on, comes Brandon, off learn like me a, something. a little bit of a history lesson here, so I'll try not to make it too dry, but... Um, the Mexican film industry w- was uh, kind of going through a-, a tough time in the 50s and the 60s. Like, it it was going... Well, tough time compared to what? What happened prior to that? I well, mean... the 40s and early 50s was the golden era of yeah. Mexican films. Now, we're talking, you know, the 40s and the 50s, even in America, was a you different You mean the Ernesto de la Cruz movies? Sure. There, yes, I mean there were movies that were more like Dude, that's um, the guy from Coco. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I just sorry. Yes, and yes, and um, okay, cool. So the uh, the the industry was was thriving on you know 40s and 50s fare. So it's like adventure movies, romance movies, dramas, that sort of thing. Content floss movies. What is that? He's a performer. Do you ever see the? Uh, the Around the World in 80 Days with uh, Rex Harrison. Yeah. His passe his valet in that movie, that was Content Floss, the guy with the short okay. mus- the yeah, mustache yeah, yeah. and everything. What he about was like, He was like the premier like, Mexican comedian and everything, and he made oh. a shit ton of movies. And- okay, well, it's interesting because genre fair, so when the, the cinema started to ha- kind of go through some tough times in the 50s and the 60s, with its traditional storytelling, like uh, genre fared very well. Genre including comedies, yeah. fantasies, and of course, uh, horror. Um, what's interesting about Mexican horror is that it did this thing where it combined, like I said, it's got a very special flavor. Uh, it combined uh, 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 like elements of indigenous folklore okay, uh, with... Very, <laughs> some of these movies will attest, very uh, uh, strict kind of like Catholic tradition. Oh, hell yeah. That and was it, something I really noticed. I was like, boy, uh, these movies have a lot in common with Italian cinema. Yeah. Because it's very Catholic. But it's really interesting because unlike uh, American horror films that were made at the time, these things were, were had a style that was very much based on... Uh, old horror classics that yeah. you know we love like the old universal kind of classics but it adds this <laughs> extra element of what the fuck and it like pretty macabre shit yeah some dark weird weird shit um just they, they took a little more chances they weren't so like afraid of like offending sensibilities um so like i said mexican cinema had its golden age in the 40s and the early 50s it just kind of it just tanked um the thing about it was it was exotic, it was exciting, it exported well yeah. to other parts of the world, um, but then genre just kind of took over, and I think it's a lot of it had to do with like the fact that it's kind of like a working class like pop entertainment in Mexico, and that's okay. why. I, that's why. Those are the people that were going to see movies. Yeah. Um, and just like everything, you know, there were Mexican studios. There were, there were like 2,000 uh, uh, films that were be a lot of just the studio system was very similar to how the studio system in Hollywood worked, but it just stopped. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but what happened was, is independent producers, um, were starting to see these trends of that horror, that genre was doing better. So they just kind of went out on their own 
and just started making their own kind of like weird, lurid, uh, very low budget genre drive-in movies and were these specifically geared towards mexican audiences or were these things that they were hoping to export you know or at first they were geared toward mexican audiences but uh at a certain point in and jumping ahead a bit in in the late 60s is when uh one man in particular uh started exporting the films having them dubbed sold them to tv and and they were on tv for everybody to see in america and they kind of took on a different kind of cult status but for now, we're getting weird kind of genre movies. But that's in the cinema. Meanwhile, on television, Lucha Libre is fucking huge. And for those of you that don't know what Lucha Libre is, can you expand upon that? Go brand? ahead. Lucha Libre is basically Mexican wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the time, they are masked wrestlers. So. Masked men, masked women, captured the imagination of the people. Yes. There were tons in, of in wrestling stars. I think is what they called them. Yes. Yeah, tons of stars, men and women. Um, uh, 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 and the luchadors were basically the luchadors were the wrestlers. They were basically superheroes. Yeah, and acrobats. And too, acrobats. Man, kidding. Um, and these motherfuckers fought everything. Like in a, you know in the ring, they were fighting the mafia, <laughs> spies, aliens, vampires. You fucking name it. Yeah, they were fighting, taking them. everything on. So. This is a popular thing on television. It makes an easy transition for film. Yeah. Why not? Cheap, fast, easy to make, uh, low budget rush productions. They, they, uh, uh, <laughs> boy, do they look like it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, these movies were huge. And there was something like between the 60s and the 70s, something like 150 movies were produced. Wow. That are these, uh, Lucha Libre films. Um, but the fact is, is there was no luchador who was more popular than a man named El Santo, which what, that translates to the saint. That's right. He had a career for like five decades, over 50 films. Yeah. He was known originally when he started wrestling as what's called a Rudo, which is like a heel. Mm-hmm. He was a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, but he switched over to the hero, never looked mm-hmm. back. So how can you be a baby face if you're wearing a mask? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Uh, okay, so most um, Lucha Libre films were had a like a, a fantasy element to mm-hmm. them, but some fucking dude, some genius was like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put the horror shit with this wrestling shit, and we're going to make the craziest movie ever. And that's when it really took off. And that was a Santo film, I think like his third movie, and it was called Santo versus the Zombies. Ah, yes. Now, the deal with this, though, is that these movies, <laughs> they're a vibe. That's the best way yeah. to describe them. Uh, I'm just going to give you a couple of titles. Now, th- your mileage may vary. If you can't stand wrestling, uh, if, if, if the thought of uh, just 10 minutes of wrestling on screen just throws you off in the middle of a narrative maybe these aren't for you but i would also say that these aren't necessarily movies that you want to sit down and give your full attention to you get titles like this though santo versus the vampire women classic yeah yeah, which is a very well-known one santo in the wax museum santo versus the martian invasion (laughs) santo versus the headhunters santo versus frankenstein's daughter uh, here's a great one. Santo versus the ghost of the strangler. Ooh. 
But here's the deal, guys. You can't go wrong with our first film, Pelicula Numero Uno. That is Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters. Estos son todos los papeles que he podido encontrar sobre los experimentos de mi hermano. Las leyendas sobre vampiros humanos y otros monstruos eran creídas hasta por hombres de relativa cultura. A.K.A. Santo El Enmascarado de Plata y Blue Demon contra los Monstruos. It actually says Blue Demon in there instead of what would it be? Demon Azul? Maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, 1970. So this was like the later era. Uh, directed by uh, Gilberto Martino Solares. Mm-hmm. Written by Rafael Garcia Trevisi and Jesus Sotomayor Martinez. Starring, of course, El Santo and Alejandro Moreno. Here's now, the, this is actually, this is a, a team-up movie, though, right? It is. Because El Santo, who also was the man in the silver mask and yep. everything, he is teaming up with his in-ring rival, but also like his best friend, Blue Demon. That's which right. Which is the Blue Demon. Who This is another masked wrestler who would wear a blue mask <laughs> with kind of like, you know, some silver trim and stuff yes. on it. But, but basically... In this movie, Santo and the Blue Demon, they team up to fight that's the monsters? Right. Yeah, that's the plot. So, Or, well, actually, I guess it... Kind of. Kind of, yeah. yeah. The, basically, what happens... To, to, here's, the, here's the synopsis for you guys. To foil his plan for world domination, wrestling superheroes El Santo and Blue Demon battle the mad Dr. Halder and his army of reanimated monsters. Um, and, yeah, you said it. Like, it, it, the movie starts off... <laughs> With a 10-minute wrestling match. Yep. Shot like a wrestling match from afar. And like totally with like an announcer and everything too. And While El Santo watches. Watches smiling for 10 minutes. I mean... It, and it's a tag team match, right? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of... <laughs> and again, this is your endurance test. If you can get through well, the first... Well, is that how it starts though? Or does it actually start with kind of like a run through of all the monsters that are going to be in this? Does right? it show that? I, I don't so. remember. I, I know that's in the trailer. I think that's how the movie actually started too. Okay. Like first you get to see like all the monsters that are going to be in oh, it. Oh, I forgot. Okay, Which was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, Frankenstein. Oh, dude, the names. I, Vampiro. Uh, El Momia. <laughs> the, the names are so funny. Um... Fuck, do I have it up? Uh, Cyclope. Oh, fuck it. I can't find the names. God damn it. Never mind. Fuck you. Forget it. But there's like a vampire woman. There's <sighs> even like a hunchbacked dwarf. Okay, that's the thing. He, uh, look, it's... How do I say this? So if we're programming five films for your Cinco de Mayo fest at your house, let's say... Keep in mind, this movie is the movie that you would put on while you're making your margaritas, <laughs> while you're while the guests are arriving, while the guests are arriving to help set the tone. Yeah, just to get you in that adventure mode, um, because it is literally eighty-eight minutes of luchadors punching monsters in the face. I, I, I mean, once you get past like the thirty-minute mark, that's 
all it is except for two inexplicable full-length musical numbers. So <laughs> this will it will test your patience as far as uh, narrative storytelling goes. But that's not what these movies were about. Yeah. These movies were about just having a good time. I mean, it's stylistic, too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of convention that exists within these Mexican luchador movies. And you really kind of have to be a part of the culture to really kind of understand them. I mean, Mexican citizens will kind of understand this stuff inherently. You know, they look at it, you know, and they know exactly what's going on. For someone that's kind of outside of the culture and everything, it's going to seem cheesy and weird and everything, too. And yes, it is those things, you know, but it's also a whole lot more. And as Brandon kind of said very apropos at the beginning of this, that it's a whole vibe. You yeah. Know? You got to really kind of give yourself over to the vibe and you will find that you're really going to enjoy yourself. Yeah. Hope you like just an organ doing the score. Yeah. <laughs> Scorgan. Scorgan. <laughs> but what we're really here for are the monsters. Yeah. And I, I just want to kind of describe some of the monster action that sure. occurs in this. because Hot monster action. It's pretty wild. Um, The very first monster I want to describe is just this weird <laughs> little alien who's like the alien from Meatballs 2, except his brain is exposed. It's yeah. It's like he's a small and he like kind of wanders around the inside of the laboratory, doing and nothing. One face like a troll two mask, just looking like an idiot. Well, like they do, like lay him down and try to cut him open at one point too. No, right? no, no. That's the Cyclops. Oh, that's the Cyclops. Right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. you got this guy. He's adorable, and every time he's on screen, I just want to. I want him to. I wish we had one. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> he just kind of hangs up in the corner. But you get. Um, we would have to pay him a living wage, though. Okay. You're right. I don't, I don't think that this guy pays him anything. I think he just beats him up all the well, time. Well, that's why we would treat him better than he would be treated by Dr. Holder. So you have a bat that turns into a Dracula that's stopped by a magic <laughs> ring. Um, you get a scene. And he can be out in sunshine, too. That's the other oh, thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Full-on sunshine. But I guess his big thing is that he's usually clinging to something high up and then just jumps <laughs> down on you. Like, that's all you ever see him do is like... And he always looks afraid to jump. Spread eagle, like, <laughs> like he's going to fall. Yeah. Uh, you've got... Uh, uh, there's a scene where a bunch of green-faced zombie studs are exploring a house of skeletons, mm-hmm. and they find what very well could be the corpse of John Carradine in the coffin. Quite possibly. But it's a fucking mummy. Yeah. There's a mummy that looks like John Carradine. There's a scene where a rock is melted away by a blowtorch Mm -hmm. to reveal a goddamn cyclops. Yep. Um, I guess a a wolf man. Was that a rock or was it an ice wall or something? Is it ice wall? I think it was like an ice wall because you could kind of see through it. Oh, was it an ice wall? Okay. Yeah, they actually, I think they went to an ice house, got blocks of ice, and then put like the blocks of ice like a wall put the actor in the uh, the Cyclops suit, and then like he used an actual blowtorch just to melt a Really? Because it looked like it wasn't happening for real. It looked like it was like a composite. Oh, no, dude. Actually, I think they were actually melting the ice for That's real. That's great. So there's what I think is a wolfman. El Hombre Lobo. Yes, that is the wolfman. And a Fu Manchu Frankenstein. Yes, he does have a Fu Manchu. That is another cool thing. They're all placed into these like sci-fi tubes and brought back to life with electricity, which... Allows us to witness a wolfman scaring a horse <laughs> and then eating a family. You get a Cyclops kills a just, I guess he's a, a net enthusiast. Maybe he's a fisherman. Yeah. I think he's just hanging out with nets like a weirdo. Uh, a horny couple's killed by Frankenstein. The dude literally gets his head crushed by Frankenstein. He steps foot. on his face, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dracula uh, bites a mod hipster in the daylight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get... Uh, 
underwater scene of El Santo swimming around past alligators and a swamp cyclops battle. Guys, I'm going to tell you, the amount of monster brawls in this movie is fucking out there. Uh, you get a Santo versus all monsters brawl in a cozy study. You get these scenes of just all the monsters walking in a straight line. <laughs> you get sexy lady Draculas and bikinis climbing out of coffins. Yeah. Lots of monster brawls. Uh, there's a, a, a rooftop zombie brawl, nightclub monster brawl. There's a car chase with a Frankenstein. Yeah. Frankenstein's driving a car through the streets of Mexico, and they're having to... <laughs> um, Santo and the Blue Demon fight each other a lot. Well, because I think one of the, the, the things that happens in this film is that Blue Demon gets kidnapped by this Dr. Halder, and then he clones him? Replicates it, sure. So, yeah. Makes, sure. makes a copy of him, and then, of course, the, the Blue Demon copy does whatever Dr. Halder wants, you know, whatever the villain wants. Yeah. And, of course, it kind of blows El Santo's mind because, you know, this is my friend. But he knows right away. He doesn't fight. He's like, this is not my friend. Something is wrong. And then yeah. they beat the shit out of each other in front of the car. Um, you get torch foo. There's yeah. bloody vampire staking. You get a castle in flames, and then you get a great moment. Yeah, there's a lot of blood in this. Movie. There's it's a surprisingly a lot bloody of blood. film. Yeah. It really is. And then there is a great moment. Uh, spoiler alert! At the end of the movie, after the castle has burned down, where everybody just all the survivors just look at each other and go, "Huh? Well, I guess that happens." <laughs> <laughs> That's like the like it's just a Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, this is perfect drive-in fare. I mean, it really, is. this this would be the sort of thing that I'm sure in the United States where this movie played was almost exclusively in drive-ins. Had to have been. Yeah, had to have been. And um, again, like I said, don't put this movie on. You you probably can do well with almost any Santo film. I we or we picked this one because it's in color and it's got all the monsters. Yes, yeah, that's kind of why. Probably better Santo films out there. But well, they say that probably you know El Santo and the Vampire Women is probably the best of all the El Santo movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we kind of we went for breadth, not necessarily depth. Sure, <laughs> I guess I d- I described it earlier as it's basically like a 60s or a 70s uh, version of the Aquabats live stage show. There you go. So if you know what I'm talking about, then, you know, you know what you're in for. Um, put it on. Put it on in the background. You can put the put it on mute and just play your party music as people come in. But it's going to be a great way to set the tone and kind of get you guys in the mood for yeah, it. Because every every so often you'll kind of turn to the screen and go, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and then immediately after go okay well that's going on for 10 minutes i guess i can look away and look back and probably not miss anything um so anyway that's that's our first choice uh santo santo and blue demon versus the monsters um and now el monstruos if we were having a fun time I think it's time to dial things down just a little bit. Oh, yeah. And get a little spooky. Now, Chris, remember how I mentioned those enterprising indie filmmakers who got a whiff of genre cinema? These were the ones that were in the late 50s, early 60s? Yeah. Yes. I do recall you mentioning something about that, Brandon. So one of them was a man named Abel Salazar. Is that the guy that did, like, Bad Lieutenant? <laughs> and not the Toolbox Murders. What was the what was the other one? Driller Killer. Driller Killer. Yeah. Uh, Body Snatchers, the 93. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's him. 
and uh, Abel Ferreira Salazar. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's the it's Abel Ferreira and uh, the bass player of Third Eye Blind got together. Oh, okay, okay. Um, where are my three EB heads at? <laughs> Okay, here's the deal. Uh, Abel Salazar was a very, very popular uh, Mexican matinee idol. Mm. He was described as kind of like Mexico's William Powell. Ah, okay. Uh, William Powell is uh, was a uh, wonderful comedic actor who was like the star of the the Thin Man movies. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, debonair, dashing, with a little bit of an ironic twist. True movie star, mm-hmm. matinee, wonderful performer. That's what this guy kind of was. Nick and Nora. Nick and Nora, yeah. Nick and Nora, the Thin Man movies, especially the first two. Fucking wonderful. Wonderful movies. We'll save that for our Thin Man podcast. Uh, Thin Man comes home into me. <laughs> uh, okay. Abel Salazar loved universal horror films. He, he understood. Well, who doesn't? Well, this guy really did. And yeah. he also understood franchises. He was kind of like a Mexican Kevin Feige. <laughs> really? <laughs> he knew. He knew. He knew. Like, he was like, this is a market. Kind of like how R.L. Stein wrote Goosebumps books because he was like, holy fuck, there's a market uh, uh, for, for horror, horror for eight to 12 year olds that nobody's tapped into. This guy, Abel Salazar, felt the same way about Mexican horror. He was like, this is strange. There's no Draculas. There's no Frankenstein movies. We could make franchises here. <laughs> making pesos. Yeah. And he, so he starts making movies, uh, starts mm-hmm. producing them instead of starring in them. Okay. I think his most famous. Uh, so is this like the the Mexican Robert Evans? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's closer to to Robert Evans than he is to yeah, Kevin kind Feige. Of a matinee idol, and then all of a sudden he says, "I'm gonna." I'm, he still the, has a boner the, the for kid, acting the, and writing. The kid. Well, yeah. I, I, how do you say the uh, not Pero? What's the? How do you say the kid stays in the picture? Yeah, exactly. It, in, in Spanish. In Spanish. El Niño de la Película. There we go. <laughs> película. Sure. Um, okay. It's like Dracula, but with Pele and So, by the way, around this time, the movies that were getting made uh, were films like The Witch's Mirror, which mm-hmm. is a pretty intense uh, film, and <laughs> a pretty classic, and I kind of wish we had picked this one in a way, because uh, it's got probably a little bit more of a drive-in vibe than the movie that we chose for our second film, but it's called The Brainiac, which has, again... Superman in it. Is Superman in The Brainiac? Well, Brainiacs and Superman. No, 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 no. This is about some weird demon that sucks brains out with a really long tongue. I'm being an asshole. Okay, he's got this bulging balloon head, and he's got these like tube finger That's pinchers. That's awesome, though, man. I know you know this monster. If you see it, you'd be like, oh, I know the fucking Brainiac monster. It's like... Does it look like the, uh, what is it, the Metaluna creature? No, mutant, it's... Mutant from... No, dude. It's, Silent Earth? it's so dumb uh, I, I'm that I'm going to show you... Uh, uh, because, and I'll, we'll post a picture of it maybe on our social medias. Brainiac, yeah. Um, here he is. <laughs> oh yeah, I totally know that. You know guy. him. Yes, You've I seen that, that motherfucker. Yes, I have seen that guy. He's adorably stupid. It kind of looks like the hairy mask from Black Sunday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And he's got this long forked tongue that comes out. He sucks people's brains out in little tube finger. It's so weird. Um, and it actually is a lot of fun. But um, I like weird and fun. Those are the movies that are kind of getting made, kind of goofball. But uh, uh, Abel Salazar makes a movie called El Vampiro. El Vampiro. 
um, which is really, it's just Dracula set in Mexico. That's it. Uh, it's very highly regarded. Uh, it's considered a, 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 a cult classic in certain circles. Mm-hmm. And it actually is, um, I've never seen El Vampiro in its like entirety, but um, I'm familiar enough with it, kind of like in a Harry Potter way, where I've never really seen the movies. I've, I knew the like, wrestler Vampiro. Did you? You knew him? Well, I knew of him. Oh. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't know if you guys went to school together or some shit in Lakeland. No. Okay. Well, El Vampiro is is a very kind of like uh, poetic. It's it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really uh, it's got a great atmosphere. It's really uh, well filmed, really well shot. But that's not the movie that we're picking. That is no, not... Brandon. What movie are we picking? Um, this is 1961, and Salazar makes his what some would say his gothic masterpiece. Um, but was also most definitely his last film. And that was The Curse of the Crying Woman. She spread terror because she thirsted for power in The Curse of the Crying Woman. See nightmare after nightmare in the most terrifying picture ever to be shown. See the horror of her evil curses come to reality in The Curse of the Crying Woman. See a fight to the death with a vampire. See terrifying werewolves in their search for blood. For the most terrifying experience of your life, see The Curse of the crying woman. La Maldición de la Llorona. Released 1963, directed by Rafael Baledon, written by Fernando Galeana and Rafael Baledon. I think, Raphael. Was, I think it's Rafael. Oh, okay. Uh, that, sorry, typo. There's a typo here, so it looks like the director Ragul. actually wrote it. Yeah, Ragul. Yeah, Rafael. Rafael Baledon. Starring Rosita Arenas, Abel Salazar, so he actually was in the movie. Yep. And Rita Macedo. Synopsis of the film is, after 15 years of being away, a woman returns with her husband to her aunt's hacienda in the Mexican countryside without realizing that her relative is a sorceress who wants to use her to bring an evil witch back to life. Now, Brandon, you know, just from reading the synopsis and kind of looking at the title here and everything, too, we see the word Yorona which is a very, very old Mexican myth here. Legend, I don't know, folk tale. Yeah, now remember I told you earlier, a lot of Mexican horror films pulled from their indigenous folklore. Which La Llorona is is actually kind of like, um, well, I don't know, there's, there's a... Like Medea, really, if I can think of anything, you know, like the, the story of Medea and Jason. Yeah, it's more, it's, it's more like... Uh, she was uh, to keep kids from wandering off into the woods. Yeah, it was just to scare kids and to, and to keep them in line. That's where her. Yeah, but actually, I guess the story itself is about you know a woman who was kind of neglected by her husband and everything, and then her children. Like any folklore, there's drowned. multiple. Yeah, there's multiple iterations of the yeah. story, but the classic one is that she was having an affair with a well-to-do uh, uh, Mexican man who bailed on her and in her sorrow in her uh in her 
just heartbreak the children that she had with him uh a married man by mm-hmm. the way who wanted nothing to do with her she drowned her two children and immediately realized what she had done regretted it killed herself and then was cursed to wander became the wailing woman or the crying woman crying for her one, children yeah. who she drowned herself yes um and also the original title of the knack song my sharona yeah La Yorona. And now her story uh, has transcended, like it's reached American culture. There was a Universal like, Halloween Horror Nights house you based understand? on that it. That was actually a cool house. Yeah, it's got a giant uh, woman like at the end of it, yeah. ah, swallowing like another person. I, that's the only thing I remember from it. But it was, that was a pretty cool one. That was what 2012. Well, I, think I it was fuck if I know 2011. Shit. Wow, wow. long time ago. Now. It's interesting because, like we were saying earlier, movies like uh, even even the vampire, El Vampiro, or the Brainiac, or um, uh, the Witch's Mirror. Well, yeah, even the Witch's Mirror, kind of, which is a very surreal film, has a little bit more to offer as far as straight up in your face thrills go. Mm-hmm. This movie, uh, The Curse of the Crying Woman, is closer it's in tone. Psychological. Yeah, it's definitely psychological, but there it's shock. It's got some shocks, yeah. but it's more in well, so line. So the haunting. Yeah, hmm. it's but it's more than that. It's more lurid than the haunting, and closer to like an Edgar Allan, a Roger Corman Poe film. Yeah, it's got more of that vibe. Um, it's not, but it's got that thing. It's got this Mexican flavor, and it's really hard to put your finger on exactly like. It's a good dosage of Catholic guilt. <laughs> yeah, but it's also brutal. Yeah. I mean, the, the very beginning of this movie. So this is the slow, quiet movie. And I'm putting it, I think we were putting it early on in the program uh, just to kind of get you in a spooky mood. Yeah. Because everything else from here it's kind very of. atmospheric. It is. And this is a very, got a wonderful gothic, like dreamy atmosphere spooky woods with skeletal branches that kind of a thing um haunted woods horse-drawn carriages um but dude the the ghost in this movie is fucking terrifying she's got the, uh they kind of like did what they do to peter cushing in tales from the crypt mm-hmm. they put like black eyes on her uh they've to written, make it look like empty eyes yes yeah and they're kind of like they're more you know what she kind of looks like do you remember in Ch- It Chapter One, mm-hmm. the flute playing painting woman? Yeah. She kind of looks like that. Her really? eyes are like a little too close together mm-hmm. and they kind of like go in like like point upward a There's little a bit. Can't do yes. And it's and she is got she is constantly in I mean, you hear her wailing, yeah. but like Every time you see her, she looks like she's in pain. Yeah. And it's it really is creepy. It adds a creepy vibe. And she also carries with her three fucking dogs like a goddamn Cerebus. <laughs> and in the first five minutes of the movie, we see her. We see a dude toss a knife into another dude's heart. We see dogs eat a man. And then a carriage crushes a woman. Like a guy takes a whip, hits the horses to run over a woman's torso and kill her. And like... You would never see this kind of violence in an American film from this year, 1963. There are exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Psycho has but some visceral Mexico moments. Mexico doesn't have the Hayes Code, so. No. 
No, they don't. So you get things like a creepy castle. You get you get like a house on haunted hill kind of score. Yeah, I don't know that there's a theremin, but there is like like that vibe to it. Yeah. You know, everywhere dreamy. You get a woman looking in a mirror. She sees Lala herself, <laughs> which we're just gonna call her Lala. For Lala. Sure. Anyway, uh, Lala turns into a rotting skeleton. <laughs> you get. Um, a uh, 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 bat creature, you get a torture dungeon with um, sleeping skeletons mm. that get brought back to life. There's a great sequence. Oh, my God. There's a great hallucinatory sequence where the moon takes a girl's eyes and all of a sudden ghostly floating stylized eyes just start like floating all around her. Like so It's kind of like a Louis Bunuel sort of you know, yes. surrealism. Yes, but also with this kind of like 60s psychedelic horror vibe, and it's in black and white, so it's really weird. Yeah, but this movie's like 63, so this is even kind of like, you know, even predating that a little bit. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. It's got, it does, it has a really cool, like, they've been drinking some tainted mezcal. <laughs> vibe it does it's like they're kind of like fuck it this is what happens um you get a monster man in a barn you get chandelier deaths you get skeleton lap dissolves you get another crumbling castle i love chandelier deaths oh dude best favorite chandelier death i have to go classic and probably go all the way back to phantom of the opera yeah yeah okay great one great one you know what's you know what's a pretty good chandelier death i think in a movie that is really hated what's that um Die Another Day, the James Bond movie. Yeah, no, no, no I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about that. Yeah, it's at the end of the Ice Castle when uh, they're like, um, they drop the, the, the guy with the, the diamonds, diamonds in his face. face. Yeah, yeah, he drops the ice chandelier on yeah. him, hits the water, blah, blood pools out. That's a good chandelier yeah. death. Um, there's an almost chandelier death in House on Haunted Hill. Yes. Um. Anyway, yeah, chandelier death. Th- there is a chandelier death in this one, followed up by a skeleton lap dissolve. It's awesome. So now, like Santo, this movie is a vibe. Mm-hmm. And I said this earlier, we're programming it earlier in the run. Almost not. I don't want to not to get it out of the way, but just to remind like Mexican folklore is frightening. There is some scary stuff, but um, and, and, and it's good to re- be reminded of these frightening things, these things, these moral stories to kind of keep you in line, which is good if you're about to party. I mean, this is like Brothers Grimm kind of stuff. It really is. This really is like a fable. It feels Mm -hmm. like a fable. Um, It's, again, not going to be for everybody, but if you are in the mood for a weird black and white spooky atmospheric movie, you're going to have fun with this. The only problem is it's pretty hard to find. Um, and the only versions that are out there that I'm aware of are kind of low quality, uh, bootleg versions, but uh, maybe one day we'll get a beautiful restoration of it. It needs some love. It does. And a lot of these movies that I mentioned could use some love. Yeah. So that's Curse of the Crying Woman, film number two on our five film, Cinco de Mayo Especial. Now it's the 70s. We move on to the 70s. All right, and I'm going to wrap up my history lesson here, and then we're able to talk. And I feel like, I'm sorry, I feel like I have, like, bogarted the show. No, man, you're being Professor Brandon right now. This is kind of cool. Dr. Windish. Well, it ain't Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Okay, so now we're in the 70s. Um, 
genre film in Mexico is starting to have a hard time. Um, oh man! They start throwing sex in there. Now you get Santa movies with titties in them. Mm. Um, but it's not really doing a well, whole lot of good. Definitely driving fair right there. It it really is, but it's not really the shot in the dick that Mexican <laughs> films need. Um, and in fact, Mexican cinema in the seventies was very a very very tumultuous time. Um, what's going on is uh, you have. Well, I guess this is more toward the end of the 70s, so I'll, I'll save that for maybe after we're done talking about this movie, um, but uh, basically a new generation of filmmakers emerged. The, the parallels between Mexican cinema and American cinema are incredibly close. Um, in the 60s and the 70s in America, what happened with, in, in film? Well, you have the ending of the Hayes Code, and the studio system breaks down completely, and a whole series of film students come of age and begin making their own movies outside of the studio system. Basically, outsider art film. Yeah. You get Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, baby. Yeah. The, it's the group of maverick filmmakers. Like Raging Bull was 1980, Brandon. Like, well, that was toward the end of the, that era. Yeah. But like Scorsese and Spielberg and De Palma and Coppola John and Lucas Carpenter. and Carpenter to a lesser extent. Um, uh, and and uh, Friedkin and Bogdanovich and... Uh, Ashby and uh, Beatty, uh, all these guys. Yeah. And in Mexico, you had a very similar thing. It was a bunch of dudes. These guys are making movies in America based on the films that they kind of grew up watching. And a lot of their influence comes from French films, movies like, uh, well, you mentioned Bunuel earlier. Yeah. Um, or uh, uh, Truffaut. Cocteau. Or Cocteau. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, is Cocteau who made uh, Diabolique? Les Diab- no, that's Clouseau. Clouseau. Clouseau, of course, The Wages of Fear. I mean, yeah. we're talking about some really important films in France that influence people. So in Mexico, something very similar is happening. These guys are making almost borderline avant-garde films that are playing to an audience. Now, in America, these avant-garde films were really hitting a zeitgeist and they were huge hits. Yeah. Now, Easy Rider would never be a hit. No. Now, um, Shampoo would never be a hit. Um, uh, well, those are movies of their time. Right. But in Mexico, this is where the parallels kind of drop off because these guys suddenly are artists, a new generation of artists who love world cinema. Yeah. And uh, not necessarily the low-budget horror that we've been talking about. These are people who wanted to make meaningful, high art, art, like impactful expressions of artistic merit, radical, subversive films, things, their films, their statements. Um, And they didn't really like horror. They were just kind of making other things. But there was one guy named Juan Lopez Montezuma. And like the guy that gives you diarrhea? (laughs) (laughs) And it's arguable that his movies are kind of diarrhea of the mind. And I mean that in the best way. Um, Because it is as if... Spicy diarrhea? (laughs) It is as if Montezuma has just eaten everything he can with weird cinema and then drank the drank water. that water <laughs> and then just this is what comes out the dude loved vampires loved vampires sure what's not to love about vampires um 
and it's interesting because Lopez Moctezuma worked with another very famous filmmaker, Hodorowski. Oh, wasn't he Argentinian as opposed to Mexican? I believe so. Yeah? Yeah, I think he was. But they speak Spanish, so they I guess were, they yeah. <laughs> Same team, same team. Those hey, guys... language is a thing that really kind of binds culture together. Absolutely. You know, we have more in common, I think, probably with, you know, Aussies and Brits and everything, simply because we share a language. Um, where I think you know those types of films might be more accessible to us because of sharing the language, and I think that would probably prove true of people that you know share Spanish you know as a language. Although I, people that live in Central and South America, I think their movies might be a little more closely related than say going over to Spain itself, which would probably have more in common with you know other European filmmakers. But sure. Anywho, I'm sorry. Please continue oh, it's okay. with your lecture. It's okay. No, Doc- no, no. I, I'm sorry, I, Dr. Windish. Please. I don't want to make it a lecture. I'd like to have uh, a dialogue. So, uh, But and maybe you can talk about this a little bit because I did not prep, prepare too much here. But um, uh, Moctezuma and uh, Jodorowsky created together, along with a third man who, whose name escapes me, they created what is known, was known as Panic Theater. Are you familiar with I'm this? I'm not familiar as with a Panic student theater, of theater at all, no. Oh. Well, I wish I had prepped a little more then. Um, well, yeah, I, it's I It's like apologize. right up your alley, it's man. It's like, you know, theater of cruelty, you know, and, and so it's not, our toe, but, you know, that's French. It's not too far off from that. The Panic movement um, of, of this era, um, I'm just going to kind of read what's on the internet yeah, here, because sure. I'm not making this up off the top of my head, but it's, okay, so the, you said, uh, you know, the... Uh, Boonwell uh, and Artaud's Theater of Cruelty, mm-hmm. um, not too far off from that. Um, the group basically concentrated on chaotic and surreal performance art okay. as a response to surrealism becoming mainstream. So these guys were trying to make shocking art, yeah, trying to make things that would release destructive energies in searching for peace and beauty. Okay. So, like, as a form of catharsis, or as or a what? form, yes, they they in your face whirlwind of emotion theater to make you the audience member afraid and start to question. I've always described that kind of stuff as the angel in the wreckage. Huh. So it's like okay, through this adversity, through this kind of like Guignol uh, sense of like just in your face insanity, mm-hmm. we are now. Thinking in terms of, uh, of, so it's a call to action. Yes, I think so. I okay. think it is. I mean, it's it's confrontational theater. It's it's may it's okay. you know and it's I'm, that's why I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I don't mean this. I don't mean to make this sound like I'm throwing you under the bus, but you were a part of a of a collective of theater people here in Tampa. Yeah, uh, that kind of formed under similar auspices, Well, yeah, but right? I guess panic theater, you know, is just something I'm not familiar with. I mean, I think that sounds like it was more of a cinematic movement than anything else. No, it was a theater. It was, it was a, theatrical, a theatrical thing. A theatrical thing. And, I, I mean, you know, even when I was in college and we were doing sketch comedy, we would do kind of variations of this where we would lock the doors. I mean, there's agitprop, you know, and uh-huh. like, you know, I mean, there's also, you know, Meyerhold biomechanics and that kind of stuff, sure. which is a, more of an acting style, but it was also utilized quite a bit by people that were going through and um, say like the living theater, Judith Molina and uh, Julian, Julian Beck. Beck. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that sounds, and, and even the stuff that, believe it or not, Stuart that, Gordon? that Stuart Gordon was doing. Um, what was his well. theater in Chicago called? I feel uh, like it was something similar to Panic Theater. What was it? What was it? Yeah, I 
I don't recall what the name of his theater was. Severed Head Eats a Pussy Theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what these guys were. That's what uh, Montezuma was doing. That's what. Uh, but it uh, is this kind of agitprop sort of thing where yes. you're, you're trying your to inspire space. people to action. Yes. Which I mean, you can even go back and and. Well, anyway. Naked women covered in honey, crucified chickens, staged murders of a rabbi, giant vagina, throwing live turtles into the audience, canned apricots being tossed, yeah. that kind of shit. The so, shit that if you saw it now, you'd be like, oh, go fuck yourself. Yeah, pretentious bullshit. Yeah. Well, but honestly, I mean, that's the other problem with audiences today, though, too, is that, you know, they look at the descendants of this type of work and everything and all meaning and you know immediacy has been stripped away because yeah. of time it's like when i used to teach film uh my high school students you know i'd, I'd show them citizen kane and say this is the greatest film ever made and of course they'd look at it and they're like why and it's because this is the first time that this kind of stuff is done you know everything now has become so derivative yeah. that any impact that you know the original stuff had it's been hashed and rehashed and a lot of times stripped of any significant meaning that it ever had so it means absolutely nothing now it's just that's exactly what panic theater was okay. there because the surrealist Shaking movement people out of the mold, suddenly yeah. becomes you know you've got dali who's like introducing surrealism to a bigger audience of people and now it kind of loses its magic yeah. so these guys were like well, we're going to fucking uh, do anti that. We're going to yeah. be really like histrionic with it in a way. These guys ended up getting out of the theater for obvious reasons mm -hmm. and collaborated on a monumental film, uh, El Topo. Okay. Which is a revisionist Western, I guess, if yeah. you could call it anything. And and it's a wonderful, weird work of art. Yeah. So that's... The Holy Mountain. That's what these guys did. Uh, Montezuma was the producer. Um, uh, uh, he let Jodorowsky direct, and that's what they did. But eventually, Lopez Montezuma, uh, he went out and, and made his own movie. He made a movie called Mansion of Madness, um, which, okay. But he really... Do you think these guys worked on Dune together? I don't think I don't think Lopez Juan Lopez Moctezuma did. Okay, but I, you know anything's possible. Well, it wasn't until Lopez Moctezuma made this film, our third film to be programmed, that he really truly knocked it out of the park. And that film is called Alucarda. Alucarda. God the Father commands thee. God the Son commands thee. God the Holy Ghost commands thee. No! Con Claudio Brook. <coughs> David Silva. <coughs> Tina Romero. <coughs> Susana Camini. <coughs> Adriana Roer. Tina French. Alucarda, dirigida por Juan López Moctezuma. Alucarda, also known as Alucarda, la hija de las tenebias. The daughter of darkness. Oh, like... Tenebrae. Yes. Okay. So anyway, uh, this movie was released in 1977. Ooh. It's the year of my birth. Hmm. Yes. Another great thing that came out in 1977. <laughs> uh, so yes, directed by Juan Lopez Montezuma. 
written by Alexis Arroyo and Juan Lopez Matezuma, based on Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. So, of course, you've got this classic vampire tale. Homie loved vampires. Yes, well, but he likes to put his own bent on them, too. Lesbian vampires. Especially lesbian vampires. Starring Tina Romero, Claudio Brook, Susana Camini, and David Silva. After the death of her parents, a young girl arrives at a convent and brings a sinister presence with her. It is her enigmatic imaginary friend, Alucardo, who is to blame. Or is there a satanic force at work? Alucardo's imaginary? Is it her enigmatic... Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't like that description. Yeah, I don't like that description either, because yeah, that's that's not really... You know, a lot of times, though, the thing that they put no, on the back of the imaginary. goddamn box... She's not. She's, she's not, not fucking mad. It's very clear. There, there's a whole convent trying to stop her. Yeah. No, that's bullshit. Sorry, that's my fault. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pay enough attention to when Th- I copied. That's fine. That. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a lot of times these synopses and stuff like that are so shitty. That's not what the movie's about at all. No, it's not. Well, Chris, let's talk about Alucarda. This fucking movie, man. because this movie is truly, tr- just truly warrants discussion. Amazing, this film is. Yeah. Now. Alucarda was a movie that for me, so, okay, this movie is basically out of print. Um, this, I, you know how I saw it? My dad bought it blind, like, in 2002. He, he was just like, this sounds like a crazy movie. He bought it, and that's how I first discovered it and watched it. Yeah. And I remember watching it going like, this is, <laughs> this is insane, and I loved it, yeah. but for a different reason. Um, it had been a long time since I'd seen it. It's still not easily available. In fact, in order for us to do this episode, we had to buy the now out of print twenty year old DVD. Or, yeah, DVD. Sorry, DVD. Yeah, it wasn't even Blu-ray to watch it, and we watched it together here at the projection room. Mm-hmm. Had a big, wonderful screening of it, and you. It was almost like a first time. It was a first time experience. Yeah, for I mean, you. I was familiar with the movie. I mean, I knew of it and everything like that. But honestly, I don't think I'd ever gotten my hands on it. And I like to think that while I remembered mostly the first half of the movie. The back half of the movie. This might as well have been a first time view for me. Yeah. Um. And boy, oh boy, this movie's fucking awesome. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And not just on you know an in your face drive in crazy movie. I mean, this movie has so much going for it from its art direction to its costuming to its set designs to uh you know even the performances are fully committed to um yeah everything is like great yes uh, everything is well done the only thing that's like shaky is like maybe the the scripting maybe like i don't know no, no no that's not accurate that's not true no i take that back i don't know what's shaky what's shaky of is that it's insane yeah and it's like it's so avant-garde and in your face that it can it's shocking in a way. Yeah. Um I you're right. So th- it takes place in this convent and the convent is ju- it's like it's like an adobe, you know, like earthenware. It doesn't look like it was built. It looks like it was grown. Yeah. Like I don't know how else to describe it. It, it it's like Giger or excavated. I mean, that's the other thing yeah. too is that like it was just dug out of a hillside full of know. like uh of uh, naked bodies in the rock. 
Yeah. You know, like they fucking made that for this movie. They made this place. Yeah. It was molded and sculpted. It's built. Rather than built. Well, I don't even think it was. Well, no, they built it for the movie. They built it for the movie, yes. But like it's got such a a weird where nature ends and artifice begins. You know, they blur the lines of that. It's like in Aliens when they go to LV-426. And it's like, and the aliens have taken over, like the hive. It's like that blending. It's like alien or any Geeker art. It's a biomechanical. It has that vibe, except there's no mechanical stuff because it's kind of. It is. It's like Adobe. It's, it's, you know, this, you know, Puebla looking. Oh my God. Battle of Puebla. (gasps) Holy fuck. We've come full circle, Brandon. Um,. Well, I think I first said to you when we were watching this, I said, this would be a beautiful companion piece to watch as a double feature with Ken Russell's The Devils. Dude, and you're you're absolutely right. I, I mean, that is... I mean, you have this, this through line that connects the two because you've got it both taking place in convents, but the convents are so diametrically opposed to one another where uh, this one looks like a... If... If the nuns in in the convent in Alucarda were kind of like, you know, earth colonial hippies, you know, kind of like all their clothes are kind of like flaxen. You can see like the hand rot, you know, that it's all been built of the earth and what's been given to them and everything and where they live. It looks like that, you know, it's been carved out of a mountainside and everything as where like if you look at... uh, Ken Russell's The Devils and everything, the convent there is very anachronistic. There's tile and metal. Yeah, exactly. So they they, they occupied just two different ends of a spectrum as far as cinematic convents go. But tonally are on par with each other. Yes, because, yeah, the the, the batshit craziness of both of these movies... you know, and, and I don't know, I, I don't mean to like belittle it because by saying batshit crazy, I mean, I mean that in a very, very good way. These movies are off the wall, but you can tell that they've been well thought out. You know, everything that yeah. is executed within this movie is done with intent. Well, it sneaks up on you like a like a Fulci film. Because Fulci, you know, you watch a Fulci movie and it's easy to kind of write off his, uh, you know, his in-your-face grotesquerie, the shit that he throws at you and his kind of ham-fisted acting and storytelling. Um, But when you actually just take a second to watch a Fulci movie, you see the craft that's there, the composition, the care, the time that was taken to, to... organize what you're seeing as part of the mise-en-scene. Yes, and that's exactly... This movie is not slapdash in any way, shape, or form. Everything has been planned, and as you said, mise-en-scene. You know, there's a place for everything and everything in its place. There is this beautiful sequence where they're all... They're, like, all of the people at the convent are praying in this kind of cathedral room. Like, it, it's like we're... Uh, it's like a it's chapel. Like the church. It's the chapel. Mm, yeah. And the the wall behind them is full of crucifixes just and and like full like two times the size of a normal person like they're large crucifixes within this dead center a giant crucifix of jesus 
right there, but there's dozens of them. It's this weird depth of field thing that it gives by, by having all just these multiple shapes and everything. It's and wild. they kind of they're superimposed on one another. So while you can recognize them all individually as a series of crucifixes that have been stuck here, you know, being on top of one another, it pulls out certain things and pushes other things into the background. It looks kind of like a Bosch painting. Yeah. And um, then all the candles and stuff that are on the altar that and somebody had to fucking light. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody had to light those like candles. Like dozens and dozens and dozens of candles. It's insane. Um, but that's just, those are the kind of um, things that you take in because the movie, I don't want to say is languid because it's not. It kind of gets, well, it's in your face. Yeah. I mean, we're, what are we talking here drive-in wise, Chris? I mean, let's just get to, we're, we're being kind of... Uh, High and mighty about like well, the I mean, art of the we, we kind of said there's there's three things in this movie that really kind of stand out. If somebody's going to go through and talk about Alucard and mixed company, you know, the three things that always jump out at you are blood, boobies, and screaming. I mean, these are these are three things that are there in abundant supply. There are extended sequences of beautiful naked women screaming Satan <laughs> for minutes on mm-hmm. end, twirling around. Um but it creates a certain type of feeling in the person that's watching the movie. There's a certain discomfort that you feel with this stuff happening, yeah. which is completely planned. The director did this on purpose, not just for the sake of being, you know, I'm going to be weird, but it creates a specific single effect, as Poe would say, inside the person that's viewing this movie. That's right. And what's cra- so like the movie is subversive but even more so it's transgressive yeah and it really delivers i mean we were talking earlier about the indigenous folklore and the mix of catholic like hardcore european catholicism yeah. and this movie very much is it reminded me in addition to ken russell's you know the devils of italian cinema because the way that it approaches you know the catholic subject matter and everything too you can tell that this was made in a catholic country well and it really is like a treatise almost against catholicism in a way you know the whole idea is this girl shows up at this convent because her family's dead and she has nowhere to go she gets to this convent she falls in love with a girl uh who seems to be possessed by satan himself and or has some kind of evil satanic power that bewitches her, the other character, um, and and because of the Catholic, uh, the, the insane Catholic stuff in this, these are Catholics who stand around. And are, there's an exposition scene. Well, they're flagellates. Yes, where everybody they're discussing what do we do with these crazy bitches whilst whipping themselves with chains and hooks and screaming and crying so yeah and they're bloody. part of this you know catholic sect i guess that believes in self-flagellation and it is it's almost a very matter-of-fact discussion it's the most insane so like, exposition scene i've ever nuns, seen it's it's like the priest and i think you know earlier when we were watching this movie we we're looking at, at the 
the uh, habits, I guess, that the nuns are wearing, mm. which is very, very like if you would look at it and somebody told you that's a nun, you'd be like, oh, OK, well, what you know, what sect are they part of, you know, or what what kind of denomination? Dude, the cost- it's such they? a cool costume design. But like we began to notice, too, that like there's more and more moments where there's blood all over these costumes. And then finally we get to this flagellation scene. It's like, oh, no wonder yeah, they don't know, clean because- themselves exactly. from the blood. They don't wipe the blood. That's part of their punishment yeah. to feel closer to Christ. You know, it's. But the thing is, is this girl is troubled and possessed, and they, the way that the the church feels they need to stop it is to kill her. Yeah, and that's what happens during an exorcism is they kill this poor betrothed woman, and these scientists kind of come in. These like men of science come in. And they're like, what the fuck? Well, you yeah, he's weirdos? the town doctor. Yeah, and also he's the town hunchback weirdo. Uh, multiple role performance. Well, yes, yeah. um, but anyway, that's that's beside the point. And the move, and then it kind of. I, I mean, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I'm, I just want to make my the point about almost anti-Catholicism or anti. Uh, uh, well, dogmatic. I mean, yeah, it's like the dogmatic. So dogmatic. This girl dies. These people are like, what the fuck? Next thing you know. Well, remember, you also have one nun within the convent that's very, very sympathetic. You know, all the other nuns are ready to write this girl off. The priest is ready to write her off. And there's this one nun that says, no, we need to love her and we need to help her through this. That's the Christian thing to do. So there's this criticism that's taking place that, you know, people have become slaves to dogma and they've kind of lost sight of what the true lessons of Jesus were. In that, you know, you're here to help people. Yes. And even if it costs you your soul or costs you your life, you are supposed to help someone. That's right. The sacrifice that you give there is on par with what Jesus did for the forgiveness of sins, you know. And if anything, this movie is closest to Carrie because that poor woman, spoiler alert. They're all going to love you. She doesn't make it out. No. She's like uh, Coach Betty Buckley or whatever yeah. in, in Carrie. She, like, despite all this, <laughs> despite her pleas, she has her throat ripped out by a vampire. And, guys, let's just go, let's go back into some driving shit here. Yeah. You get these, you get, you get a fully nude exorcism complete with, like, uh, bloodletting stabbing on a crucif or on a cross. You get a, you get a lesbian love scene that's overseen by a hunchback dwarf with a broken <laughs> nose and weird teeth who starts stabbing women in the tits and then rubbing the blood from the tits on their mouths. You get a coffin opened up feet full of a nude woman and boiling roiling blood filling the coffin. She comes out like the scariest vampire you've ever seen bites a throat out melts because of holy water. Mm-hmm. You get um a church just completely fucked by a demon possessed uh a scorned woman uh i mean if you've ever sat around go, yeah if you've ever like got like put money in the collection bucket at church and they don't then do been that made, anymore after covid and been made to feel like shit because that's all you had and they're like you know we need to try harder and be if you want to be closer to god if you've ever felt like Catholic uh, uh, guilt, guilt, <laughs> this movie will exercise you <laughs> because it it culminates in just men and women exploding into flames and burning to death, a la Carrie. It's insane, but 
the last image of the movie is maybe the most important thing to to drop to this point. The last image of the film is of a crucifix with, I mean, a crucifix with a you know Jesus Christ in flames, engulfed in flames, burning and fought. His head falls down, burning and burning. It's just the destruction, the end, and it lingers on this shot for a long time. And we're watching this movie with our mouths agape. Because when you watch it on a huge projected wall, <laughs> this movie's yeah. really in your face. And it's it's 75 minutes of hysteria. I, I mean, that's really, that's what it is. It's almost nonstop hysteria. Screaming, nudity, blood, fire, death, and some truly, truly transgressive imagery. What say you, Chris? I say here, here. Alucarda is maybe, yeah. maybe. Well, it's paired for our last film with my favorite film of the of this uh, these yeah. five. But I mean, it's it's not your average vampire film. So don't think of it. You know, we, we've mentioned vampire. The name Alucarda is a play on Dracula, of course. It, it, he was closer to nunsploitation. Yeah. Because really, you don't see fangs in this film at all. I mean, yes, you have tons of blood and everything that's in there. But even the nudity and the exploitation of the female bodies stops becoming titillating pretty early on yeah. and becomes kind of like the natural way. I don't know. It's like it feels like really earthy. Paganist. Yeah. It's yeah, kind of like pagan feel to it. The first time you see, you know, like titties in the movie, you're like, hey, cool. Whoa. Hey, what's up? But as it, the scene goes on and as the movie goes on and we're seeing more, you know, more of this nudity, it really does. It's, 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 it's almost really fascinating. It's stripping the clothes is almost a projection of power. Dude, yes, 100%. Because you know that when you see these women that have kind of doffed their, you know, nun-like habit or novice, you know, type clothing and everything like that. They, they've thrown off the shackles, you know. They've kind of dropped off anything that's kind of weighting them down and they are truly able to express themselves, you know. And it really does. It boils down to just, you know, it's the flesh, it's the blood. And, you know, when you see somebody that's strictly flesh and blood right there, they're going to fuck somebody up pretty soon. <sighs> Alucarda is... A masterpiece of Mexican cinema. Yeah, it's one of the, in in my opinion, one of the best films to come out of the uh, out of the country in a very tumultuous time for film, um, and it translates. Well, now it wasn't a big hit either in Mexico or in the states. Um, and yeah, but upon rewatch too, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that think very very highly of this movie. Guillermo del Toro yeah. is a huge fan of this movie. Tarantino is a huge fan of this Interesting. movie. You know, these these are people that think that this movie, and I, I rightly so, I agree wholeheartedly with them because it was, after watching this, I was like, holy shit, this is something special. But it is shocking. The movie is very, very shocking. And it's a perfect fucking drive-in movie. Yeah. And uh, if you can get your hands on it, it just it it comes highly highly. This movie is probably one of the artiest drive-in movies that we've really kind of wanted. To I think program it here. might be like uh, next to. Would you say hardware? As far as the artiest, like what are the kind of like artier films that we've programmed? 
I don't we, know, but you know, yeah. This I this might for me this, might this one take this the, the front runner, yeah. But that's not to say it's inaccessible because it's not. And it, it it but again, like all the other films on this list, it is a flavor unto itself and it hits on a lot of different levels. So this movie would warrant a lot of rewatching, I think, too. And goddamn, does this movie need a proper Give it a fucking yeah, 4K rest- restoration. Restore what, this, man. What are we waiting on? Like, what's you know, what's going on? Quentin, I know you're a big fan of our show and everything like that, but you know, this is something like Rolling Thunder. Yeah, dude, why isn't Rolling Thunder on this fucking thing? Come on, dude. Um, so, okay, so Alucarda, guys, third film on our five film Cinco de Mayo Especial programming block. Um, let's soldier ahead. Let's go on and sally forth. Sally forth. Sally forth. All right. This is the end of my uh, Mexican genre cinema history lesson for us, but uh, I'll just kind of end it with this. It's very brief. Really what was going on at the end of the 70s. So Alucard is not a big hit. Um, a lot of the movies aren't big hits. What's happening is, is, uh, there's one, um, visionary producer. And again, I apologize that I did not do the proper research and write this guy's name down, but he was, one man was instrumental in buying Mexican horror films, packaging them and exporting them to America. Uh, an American dude. I cannot recall his name, but he was the guy. Something initial something. And this guy is the reason why a lot of filmmakers were able to see these movies on television in the 60s and 70s. But in the 70s in Mexico, at the end of the 70s, basically the government, the Mexican government had nationalized cinema. Oh, shit. And the bottom line is they just weren't interested in horror. Obviously, <laughs> they it was just trying to do. This is kind of one of where one of those moments where like capitalism is actually kind of a good thing because the market decides. You know, if there's a market out there for something, you're going to have filmmakers that are going to basically program for that sort of thing. But you know, when the government decides, nah, we're not interested, you're going to have a friggin' dearth of good material. And you know, it's interesting. You're right. And you know, the '70s and the '80s were, I think, what a lot of people would consider a a a dire time uh especially for genre but there were filmmakers who were doing things and you know obviously uh, Guillermo del Toro was mm-hmm. was just starting out very similar to uh Peter Jackson so yeah. we're talking let's just jump into the 80s here early 80s maybe mid 80s del Toro's working on short films he's doing stuff before he makes his feature and you know he was a successful well, I mean, he was a special effects guy prior to becoming a film director. But well, he was making short films, yeah. you know, and 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 he was doing well, and he was influenced by, especially some of these more avant-garde films. Yeah. But there was, and and I think a lot of seventies and or late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties, really all eighties, um, which was a, a great time for American genre. Yeah, the best time. You know, truly. We will never see something like that again. 
I, you know, that's kind of sad when you say it like that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think it was one of those moments in time where so many things aligned properly. Advancement of special effects. Exactly. I uh, mean, you uh, you had in a group of people and investors that were willing to go and throw money into oh, yeah. these types oh, of movies. A way movies to make money off of your you investment. You have an audience that's built in for this sort of thing as well. Well, now you have a built-in audience, but there's there's no way of getting your you can get your movie made easier yeah you can get your movie made cheaper and you can get your movie made to look better but there's so much out there it's diluted you, you nobody's going to necessarily see it and unless, i don't want to have to watch five thousand movies to find five to ten good ones yeah and that, that's the, the problem right and the, the ones that are going to theaters are you know obviously marketed for a bigger crowd yeah exactly mass market shit every yeah. once in a while something sneaks through every once in a while you get um i mean you don't have the home video market like you did during the 1980s which a lot of these movies were made towards anyway they were shot on film but they wound up on on video but they could make you could make money then Tr- companies like troma could make money by spending no no money yeah it doesn't work like that now now amazon goes well we'll take your film and you go okay cool well you know it, it costs Three hundred thousand, and they're like, "Okay, what the fuck do we care?" And you go, "Oh, well, I was hoping to maybe get a return." And they're like, Pfft. "No, you, you're lucky you're to getting have your movie ten distributed." Cents on the dollar, yeah, if that, yeah. I, actually, it's it's less than it's less than that. Really? Yeah. I uh oh, I, fuck. I was just it's it's less than that. Eh, it might be about that. It's like a percentage thing based on number of streams. It's really weird. And of course, there's no way that you can. Anyway, okay, we're yeah, we're yeah, straying, yeah. so yes. I, I apologize. We digress. But the thing is, my, the reason why we were, I wanted to say that is because in the '80s, in America, great time, but there was actually shit happening in Mexico in the '80s. It just wasn't getting any attention because how could it? How can it compete with Return of the Living Dead or Friday the Thirteenth Part Four or whatever the fuck? Um, and drive-ins are dying at this point. Drive-ins are dying. Home video is going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, exporting films is a little bit trickier. Uh, and, you know, we lived through that period. It yeah. was pretty hard to find an Argento film. Yeah. Even in the 90s, it was near impossible to find a Japanese horror film. You know? So, like, not a good time for other countries to be trying to export their goods. Thank God for companies like Shudder. Yeah. Who kind of... And, and Vinegar Syndrome... Who uh, an arrow and, and arrow and the American genre film archive? All these companies that are finding well, these elite films. entertainment. If you want to go back to like the nineties, you know there are companies like Anchor Bay, well Anchor Bay, and, like William Lustig's and company, and and yeah, th- there's a lot of them, and they're still there. They still exist. It's a niche market, but the, but well, not quite the same way. Man. Not quite I mean, the same so, way. Yeah. But what we're finding is with channels like Shutter is we're able to kind of discover some let's just call them gems that weren't on our radar at the time and now we're lucky enough to have them on the radar and that brings us to our fourth film on this list and that is 1987's Don't Panic So, are you ready, Michael? Yeah One One, two, Two Three Promise never to play with the Ouija board again. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Hey, you guys. Maybe he's right. 
We shouldn't play this game. Tony. <laughs> Don't Panic, released 1987, directed by Ruben Galindo Jr., written by Ruben Galindo Jr., starring John Michael Bischoff, Gabriela Hassel, and Helena Rojo. Oh, I forgot to mention Gabriela Hassel's uh, unibrow. It's not quite a unibrow. What?! No, there's there's a little I bit guess of there's, differentiation. There's like a like centimeter that. of of room. Yeah, no, I mean they, they were very very impressive eyebrows and everything, but I didn't think it was unibrow. Uh, okay, all right. Um, hey, I like a woman with strong eyebrows. By the way, beautiful woman. Yeah, she was. Gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Beautiful woman. Um, what's this? <laughs> what's this movie about? On his seventeenth birthday, Michael unwittingly unlocks the evil forces. Of a Ouija board. Um, I, I want to just, I think I'll describe it differently. I'm going to describe it like this. Uh, a 30-year-old teenager wearing dinosaur jammies <laughs> does battle with a satanic demon named Virgil. Yep. <laughs> okay, there you go. Guys, if, you've, if you're listening to this episode and you're like, where the fuck are my crazy 80s splatter movies? Here you go. Here you go. And splatter courtesy of Screaming Mad George. Ooh, baby. And you know what's crazy is I didn't even know. I didn't even know that. I didn't know it either. Actually, I was watching the credits and I was like, Screaming Mad George? Sweet. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, the effects are good in this movie. They're great. So Ruben Galindo uh, Jr. Uh, is a still active uh television producer still yeah. fucking churning it out. Um, he's got more followers than we do on Instagram. Like, he's he's still working. He's doing interesting stuff, but... He had this period in the 80s where he was churning out these crazy shit. Um, It's kind of like, you know how like in in the Caribbean, like uh, ska is formed from American uh, R&B and rock and roll Mm -hmm. and then Calypso and Mento music. Yeah. And you get ska. That's what Ruben Galindo films are like. He's taking uh, American... uh, genre conceits and then kind of like adding the mexican honestly flavoring. i can't even say conceits man he's taking cliches the cliches actually in even the stories like straight up like almost turkish ripoff style yeah i mean i'm looking at this movie and i'm going okay it's the eyes of laura mars yeah it's but you're throwing a ouija board in see, there that's funny you say that because i say it's nightmare on elm street meets saved by the bell Okay. That's my that's my takeaway from it. Yeah, kind of. And um well, Slater's a demon zombie. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that is the Slater uh uh avatar is um very funny. Yeah. There's a great shotgun interrogation scene where every other word is fuck. What the fuck are you doing? You fuck. And the guy's like, "Hey, fucking watch out, bro." And he goes, "No, fuck you." It's it's a great scene like Oh, we're calling that guy Slater? Then... Yeah, we're, we're going to call the like, handsome like Benicio Del Pitt. <laughs> Benicio Del Pitt. Oh, man. He's like Benicio Del Toro and Brad Pitt. <laughs> Fucked. And this is who they got. Um, well, then uh, I'm trying to get like you know clarity and, and you know our analogies here straight and stuff sure. like that. So 
All right, we, we, we got our Zach in our hyper-curly, blonde, blue-eyed Mexican, which there's this lovely scene <laughs> where Michael and, what's her name, Alexandra, yeah. are skipping school and going to breakfast, Ugh. and they're walking down this thoroughfare, and it's like two white faces amidst all these like ethnically... You know, Mexican mestizo people where it's like, these look like, you know, Native American Mexicans and then these two white kids. It's this movie does what like Italian films do. So what's really cool about um, a lot of these uh, Mexican films is that they were done similar to in Italy, shot in English. Yes. And then dubbed um, because they knew that exporting the films was going to be their the big moneymaker. So they tried to appeal um, to an American audience, what's fascinating about Don't Panic is that, like, in the Italian films, they're they're hiding it. They try to hide it. Yeah. And in this movie, they don't. I mean, straight up, they're like, you're celebrating the rest of your high school life in Mexico. What a bummer. You know, like, it, this kid moves yeah. to Mexico to, like, live out his high school days, and... He has these moments of like melodrama where his accent comes through. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's really funny. Um, okay, by the way, shout out to uh, our uh, past guest Alex Challoner, mm-hmm. uh, aka the Bookubus, for uh, recommending this film. Yeah. Initially, we had planned to discuss a movie called Grave Robbers by the same director, uh, Ruben Galindo Jr. and the same composer. Same, a Who lot happens of the, to be the lead actor in this movie. <laughs> no shit? Yes. Bischoff did the composition of music for Bish, Grave Robbers? Bischoff, well, Bischoff wrote the music for both movies. Does he do the song in the end credits? Yes. Oh, dude, I want that song. The Don't Panic song? Yes, yes. I want that song tattooed on my body. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So... We were going to talk about that, but there are issues with the streaming service, and, and we, we opted out of it, and, and we chose Don't Panic instead, and I'm glad we did because, like I said, this this takes our 80s kind of um, surreal splatter fare. It's, it's got serious Nightmare 2 vibes. Definitely. Um, right down to, the, like, there's a, a subtle homoeroticism. A little bit, yeah. It's not nearly as pronounced, but it's... It's kind of there. We'll just kind of blow through this one. You know, like, I, like I'll mention some of the drive-in things about it. Sure. We get a Ouija party. You mentioned the Love Around Town montage. It's kind of like a scene from fucking Ferris Bueller. Yeah. You get a great thing where the guy's like, I'm going to try to get into that old classroom before I get in trouble from the professor. And he's like riding his bike. He cons his way into the school by with porno. With porno. Yeah. Hey, school guard, you know, let me in. No, not, you can't get let in after the bells ring. Not we magazine. It's Louie yeah. magazine. You get, um, but from a spooky level, you get... Uh, Bloody hands punching through ceilings. The idea of this movie is that it's uh, Homie's 17th birthday. They do a Ouija board. I don't know. They unleash a spirit? Yeah, that's Virgil, I guess. they were The spirit of Virgil. Virgil? But here's something, too. It's like there's some sort of weird background connection with Michael, the lead character, in Ouija boards, but they never explain what that is. So it's kind of... So and, he's had some sort of past experience with a Ouija board where apparently something wasn't good and like his mother's an alcoholic because of it like or... Ronnie Blakely in Nightmare on Elm exactly, Street exactly yeah there's a great moment where she tells it to uh, a doctor 
uh, because Jimmy's or uh, what's Michael it? Michael's having visions, um, and <laughs> he tells the doctor. Also, I have red eyes. And then the doctor's like, okay, you can leave. Yeah. And then he's like, I think your son's going through uh, crazy shit. Yeah. Uh, and then she's like, I should tell you, I have a drinking problem. Hard cut. cut. <laughs> I thought that was very, very awkward. But honestly, her performance is better than Ronnie Blakely. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's got some exorcist vibes. A little bit, There's yeah. like a scene where the mom's calling the ex-husband up on his birthday. Like, it's his birthday. Where are you, you son of a bitch? Even the climax of the movie, there, like there's a detective who's kind of trying to figure out because there's a how series of murders, murders that are taking are place, and the kid is having visions. So whenever his eyes turn red, he begins to see through the eyes of the killer as he's murdering this kid's friends. So it's kind of like a proto Halloween five. <laughs> well, this is like I said, the, 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 the eyes, eyes of, of Laura, Laura Mars. Mars. Yeah, yeah. Um. You get uh, so there's a because lot of because he can't see. Remember, he goes completely blind. Completely so whenever blind. he's like you know seeing through the killer's eyes and everything, he's bouncing off of shit like bouncing in his room. He has to crawl all the way to his bathroom because he doesn't know what's going on. You have, you're exactly right. You have stumble vision, but also really confident running through hospital corridors. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty incredible. Walking uh, through the street, getting pulled over by the cops. Demon eyes, uh, you get bloody knife murders, you get an awesome 3D TV face a la Demons 2, a la Videodrome. Um, where, a la Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Well, in Nightmare 3, he comes out of the top of the TV. Uh, well, this is kind of like his friend is like helping him. Well, it's almost him. like Nightmare on Elm Street, but like one where he comes out of the wall, but yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, more like Videodrome. You know what? A, the um, Bischoff, the kid. Mm-hmm. He's like uh he gives off like A Michael Baldwin vibes. I got that. But I think he also kind of looks a little bit yeah. like A Michael Baldwin. He, he's, yeah, except he's, he's got that hyper curly like William Cat hair. Yeah. A Mexican Baldwin. <laughs> That's what he's yeah. like. He, yeah, A Mexican Baldwin. He's like the those missing years like you know how we don't get Mike Baldwin in Phantasm 2, we yeah, get we James, James LaGrosse. Which I like James LaGrosse. I do too, but like this is that era of A. Michael Baldwin. Like, yeah. if you just pretend like this is a Phantasm sequel, yeah. it's kind of a fun way to do it. You get bluzz, b- bluzz, blood oozing hallucinations mm-hmm. in a classroom, kind of like Nightmare. Yeah. Um, you get a uh, Percy Shelley jerk-off session. <laughs> Would you want to know something? The, uh, the, the blood effects, I mean, just the blood itself, the blood looks really it's good. awesome, dude. Really it's good. It's gross the, the and color, dripping. The consistency. Yes. And, like that scene where he's kind of having the hallucination in the classroom where he's seeing that his classmate and she's got like a neck wound and she's got stab wounds all over her body but she's sitting there like nothing's happening taking notes and stuff while the blood is pouring I'm out sa- of I her oozing, dripping but onto the floor yeah it's and then, like she's soaking wet in blood <clears throat> and then it's like moving towards him Ooh, that's a great moment yeah um you get wanton bedroom trashing <laughs> you get yeah. bmx action true uh supernatural possession you get a blind teenager throwing himself out of a stained glass window in a hospital for yeah. i think to escape deflowering yeah you did you get two virgins uh l- well at least one but it's tastefully done no it, i think they're both virgins oh really yeah and and you get um you be the girl and say what she says in the scene oh shit i don't remember she says um i just wanted you to know 
this is my first time. That's her line. Oh, I'm gonna we're go. gonna reenact it. You let's do it though. Let's, this is how okay, this so, is how so, it's done. Okay, it's her saying, lying with a Mike, a Mexican Baldwin. A Mexican and Baldwin. She says this. Um, Michael. Yes. I want you to know something. Mm-hmm. This is my first. Shh. <laughs> 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 it's pretty funny. Uh, you get uh, shotgun interrogations. We talked about that. Throat slashings. Rearview mirror jump scares. That got me. Yeah. Actually, that was a pretty good one. But um, also, like, in that scene where they, they've they got uh, the guy with the shotgun, the brother of the nurse that would stab Benicio which, Del Pitt. Here, here, here's, here's the other thing that I don't, I don't get, too, is that his sister... Mm-hmm. It's after midnight, and she's a high school student that's working as a nurse in a hospital. Yeah, and all the lights are off, and she's uh, putting blood tubes into the... Uh, the spinning machine the for blood samples, the centrifuge. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. I just, that's one thing. It's like, what's I, your question? Well, I guess, <laughs> you know, the exploitation of kids is, is no big deal because technically, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old, 17 years old, I wasn't 18 yet. I was working shifts at the video store well after midnight, like into one o'clock in the morning on school nights, which technically was illegal. <laughs> yeah. So, I did the same thing. Yeah. Um, you get a great knife through the chin into the roof of a mouth. Oh, now there is a screaming mad George awesome. effect right there. Yeah, that was a good one. A and really then you get one. this like kind of Mexican knockoff Freddy Krueger, basically like a sharp hand Joe, um, who just throughout the the course of the film just gets rottier and grungier and gnarlier. So is he like Jack from American Werewolf in London? I'm sorry, I called you carne asada. <laughs> <laughs> So, guys, Don't Panic is available to stream on Shudder. Mm-hmm. Um, L- let me ask you one thing, yeah. too. The final shot of the movie. Uh-huh. Did you notice that? What? Where all of a sudden when uh, they're, I guess, are they at the funeral or whatever, and they do the close-up on Alexandra's face and everything, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know if they forgot to like check the gate or like you know, dust off the fucking lens and stuff like that, but like the plate of her is just grainy and there's shit all over like you can see like yeah. pubes stuck yeah. to it and everything yeah, yeah. i was like oh that, there's an artistic reason for that <laughs> and and do you have any insight as to what that might be no Brandon? i have no fucking idea <laughs> they just had to get the fucking movie done it had to be turned in on time um yeah it kind of ends well but you, you know what again to compare it to like a, a fulci film it kind of has a it's similar to the ending of gates of hell or yeah. city of the living dead where it's like as Fulci explains, there was like a weird hair in the gate, and we just turned it into like uh, some kind of split screen animatic and made it look like a rotting, f- whatever the fuck. Kind of a similar parallel. Do, 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 All right, Don't Panic, 1987, a lot of fun, Nightmare on Elm Street meets Saved by the Bell with a little bit of Exorcist and a little bit of uh, 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 Evil Dead and the Eyes of Laura Mars. Check it out if you're in the mood for that. Um, And again, thanks, Alex, for uh, for the recommendation. It was a lot of fun. Chris, this brings us into our fifth and final film in our Cico de Mayo Especial. And you want to know something, Brandon? I'm so, so happy that... We chose this movie because I know this movie intimately. <laughs> intimately, uh, yes, okay. exactly, yes. 
Hey, come on in, pussy lovers. But anyway, <laughs> but no, I, 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 I know this movie so incredibly well, but I have not watched it in years. You know, I there were things that I saw this this viewing that I'd never seen before. Really? Yes. Our fifth film, or as you say, Policula Numero Cinco. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, irradiated mezcal. It's okay. 1996's From Dusk Till Dawn. Everybody be cool. You be cool. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Low profile. You understand the meaning of the words low profile? Sure. Two of America's most dangerous criminals have taken hostages. What is this? It's called a punch. I'm going to ask you one question, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. might be in trouble. We're a bunch of fucking vampires out there trying to get in here and suck our fucking blood. Now, their only chance is to fight back. Oh, yeah! Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino, Juliet Lewis. Welcome to slavery. No thanks. I already had a wife. From dusk till dawn. All right. 1996. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. Written by Quentin Tarantino. Based on a story by Robert Kurtzman. He of Kurtzman, Nicotero, and Burger fame. Yes. Starring, oh my god. I mean, this is the ultimate drive-in cast list. Uh, this might be, of all the movies that we've watched on here, the one that checks every box for a fucking drive-in movie. And we'll defend our choice in a second. Yes. Well, let's name this cast yes. list here. Just Dude, name just, off the names. Just name off the names. Harvey Keitel. George Clooney. Quentin Tarantino. Juliette Lewis. Ernest Liu. Salma Hayek. Michael Parks. Tom Savini, John Saxon, Fred Williamson, Danny Trejo, Cheech Marin, and let's not forget too, Kelly Preston's in here a too. A very sweet and short little cameo. So actually that little cameo too, I kind of got sad watching this looking at it. I was like, Aww. oh, they're both gone. Who? Her and- Kelly Preston and John Saxon. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And Michael Parks. And Michael Parks is gone too, yeah. Bummer. Well, good night everyone. <laughs> All right, for those who don't know, what the fuck is this movie about? Oh, please, man. Two criminals and their hostages unknowingly seek temporary refuge in a truck stop populated by vampires with chaotic results. All right, I, before I, I want you to talk about this movie. I just have two quick things to say. Go, go for it, man. Okay. Go for it. I want to tell these two. I mean, we can pontificate on this one. I could talk about this movie fucking forever. Okay, so I have two quick funny little stories about it, and then... Let's we'll talk about why yeah, we chose this, it. right? Go for it. So, 1996, George Clooney is known most obviously for 
Return, Return of the Killer, Killer Tomatoes. Tomatoes. <laughs> Chris, I, I was going to say either that or Return to Horror. Oh, I love you, Chris. Uh, no, ER, mm-hmm. he is... Doug Ross. The heartthrob of the nation. He is... Um, he is... Everybody loves George Clooney at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and they're about to love him even more. But this was his first real, like feature film kind of starring role in this profile like this high of a profile he'd yeah. been in films he'd been in te- television he'd been on the biggest television show at the time facts of life but this is his breakthrough oh he was on er before that too right the original er with that's Eli- right with elliot gould that's right mm-hmm. now and they worked later together yeah um so what was awesome about from dust till dawn is the marketing when the movie came out, Tarantino's riding high on his uh, his Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, his gritty crime, awesome crime thrillers. Mm-hmm. Right. The movie Miramax was very smart in marketing the film with that as their angle. It was almost like they didn't want to touch the horror too much. Yeah. So, if you were only casually paying attention, you wouldn't know that this movie is about vampires. You just think it's starring that hot new young George Clooney and, oh, from the guy who made those movies that everybody loves. Yeah. That won all those Oscars. Yeah. So two of those people were my grandparents. (laughs) Faye and Ray Harper. Oh, you got to be fucking kidding. They blindly went to go see the movie. Had no idea what they were getting to. They just knew that George Clooney was the star, and they were agog. I don't know how else to describe. They were so offended. Every other word in the film is fuck. There's a whole monologue about pussy. It's horrendously violent. I'm not even sure that they got to the vampire stuff. They came home from the theater, and they were like, they were shaken. They were like, what have we seen? What? And they hated George Clooney. How dare he? It, they were, it was so funny. And I'm well aware that it's vampires, and I'm just kind of like laughing my ass off. I didn't get to go with them. I just heard the story secondhand. Yeah, how old were you at the time? 96. I was probably 13. Okay. The, on, the next little bit of that story is the movie comes out on video. My dad, Chuck, missed the movie in theaters. Yeah. Somehow avoided knowing anything about the film. <laughs> He rents the movie, brings it home, watches it, and the vampire shit happens like that, right? He thought for sure that he had bumped the remote and turned off the movie into like another movie, and he picked up the re- and he was futzing around, going like, "What? Ha- how did we?" He didn't put it together right away because the movie has like such a drastic tonal shift. But anyway, the point of that, and then he figured out, he was like, holy fuck, this is awesome. The point of this is, this movie took some people by surprise. <laughs> and it's that's one of the reasons why I think both of us love the movie. Absolutely. Why did we pick this one? Well, I think really a lot of this hinges on Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. Mexican auteur. Yeah. I mean, he's Texan by birth. His parents are both, you know, Mexican by birth. Yep. Um, he still had a lot of family in Mexico, so he would, you know, constantly cross the border and everything. A lot of his movies that he wound up making, El Mariachi, Desperado, 
you know, these movies were filmed uh, partly in Mexico as yeah. well. So, you know, there's always that kind of fluidity. He's, you know, telling Mexican stories, hiring actors either that are full-fledged Mexican or, you know, Mexican-American. Um, Which he continues to do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he flies the Mexican flag. Yeah. Maybe even higher than Del Toro, you know, who, yeah. who like makes British gothic dramas. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, but I mean, you know, he takes a lot of pride in his Mexican heritage and everything. And so much so that in a lot of his DVD releases and everything, he gives lessons on how to cook Mexican food. Have you ever um, tried what, puer- his recipes? The Puerca Pavil? Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's wonderful. So, same with my father. Yeah. Chuck has done the same thing. He like yeah. still uses those recipes for his thing. And then every time we eat, um, what is it in Once Upon a Time in Mexico? Conchitina, or Conchitina, oh my God, I can't even fucking say it. The Pabil, yes. Yes. Every time he makes that, I'm like, now you understand if this is good, I'm going to shoot you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Johnny Depp, yeah. yeah. So it's funny because we were trying to pick our fifth film, and this is the one that we chose, and- we both kind of went, well, are we cheating by choosing this movie? Because technically he's an American filmmaker. And technically this is an American film. But again, the spirit of Mexico is alive and well in this mm-hmm. movie. And we hearken back to our uh, previous season where uh, Dead in the Water, yeah, where we... I remember I chose Deep Blue Sea and I struggled with such a modern film and um but our guest host Nigel Sykes on that episode reminded me it's a drive-in movie at heart yeah and from dusk till dawn dude it doesn't get more drive-in than this no you know i i another thing that really kind of prompted me to go see this movie um this and Texas Chainsaw Massacre the next generation basically in the same movie season was uh I was a freshman in college when this movie came out so uh I was reading the Orlando Sentinel and Orlando Sentinel was the only local paper at least one in central florida because the tribune and the ledger which were the papers that I was used to reading didn't carry it but drive in foo was a regular friday column yeah. in the Orlando Sentinel so, of course, every week I'm going to read what Joe Bob Briggs is checking out and everything. <laughs> and this was one of the movies that were on there. So That's of course, cool. I, I didn't realize of, that. Yeah, I was like, hell yes, I'm going to go see this movie. And so I went and saw it at the uh, University Cinema, which was right across the street from U- UCF in Orlando. And uh, Yeah, I know, I know that cinema. Yeah. And I went and saw this movie. And you want to know something? I saw this movie by myself. Then I went back home and I got my roommate and I made him come and watch the movie with yes, me. Yes, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I saw this movie probably three or four times when uh, when it came out and just loved everything about it. I had the soundtrack. Honestly, I have the fucking soundtrack on my phone right now. Tell me what happened to you when you were driving so, over here. As I'm driving in, I've got my my phone on shuffle, you know, so it's just it's playing all kinds of just random shit. There's 80 stuff. There's fucking classical like fucking the Rondo Alla Turca comes on and everything. And just as I turn on Main Street to head down to where the studio is and everything, uh, Tito and Tarantula after dark starts playing which is the song that basically is played when uh Santanico Pandemonium does her whole dancing routine with the snake 
And I just, I laughed and laughed because I'm like, isn't it fitting that here I am going to come and record a show that features From Dust Till Dawn and then this predominant song from From Dust Till Dawn, which has an excellent soundtrack, by the way. By the way, that's the drummer of Oingo Boingo. You know that, right? Really? Yep. I didn't realize that uh, the drummer from Tito and Tarantula... Was in, although I'm looking at him like the dude with the flat or with the fucking uh, Liberty spike, and he's got the mohawk. Yeah, that's Sorry. the drummer. I well, I looked at him and he looked familiar to me, yeah, and I was like, "That's why." That's why. Okay, what's his name? Ah, uh, fuck. Yeah, see, I think okay. it's off. Fuck. Off <laughs> I fuck. think his name is off. Fuck. Well, anyway, off fuck was just fantastic, but yeah, no, that just that kind of cracked me up a little bit. But I, I do have a long association with this movie. I was so obsessed with this movie. Right now, sitting in front of me is my copy of the screenplay for From Dust Till Dawn, um, with a Ford by Clive Barker. <laughs> and Chris, we're we're very similar in that in this era, this was a great time. Like the the late nineties, screenplays were being published. They still are, but screenplays were being published regularly yes in book form and especially tarantino stuff too, tarantino kevin so smith a lot of those like hipster cool 90s gen xers yeah were getting their screenplays published i didn't have this one but i had you know i had like the kevin smith ones yeah. i had the uh i had all the cohen brothers screenplays i've got true romance somewhere too i don't know where that one is that was probably the first one that i had read and I was i've like, never read this i'd be interested to read because you know this movie gets attributed a lot to uh tarantino and Kurtzman gets kind of, you know, kurtzed. He he he's never really talked about too much when it comes to From Dust Till Dawn. You know, I don't know. I always knew from the very get go because, in addition to you know being a big Tarantino fan, I'm also a huge special effects makeup fan as well. So you know, K and B was one of those companies that I was really all about. When I heard that they were doing this movie, I was really really stoked, and I knew that this idea that Kurtzman had 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 been floating around for a while. And it's one of those things that actually it got kicked to Tarantino pretty early on. He hired Tarantino yeah. to write the script. Yeah. It was Tarantino's first paid screenplay assignment. Yeah. And what happens? <laughs> I wonder if Kurtzman gets gets money. He's got to. No, he's credited. So he, he Well, gets... Kurtzman has a nice little mini scene within the movie as well. Kurtzman's actually, in it? Kurtzman's in it, Nicotero's in it, and Berger's in it, too. All three of them are in it. Okay, I remember Nicotero. And they all get, you know, all of them get scenes. Nice. Nice. They don't get any lines, but they get scenes. Um, Do you want me to tell you which ones? Yeah, fucking tell me. Remind me. Nicotero's the first one that you see. That's what we should talk about. By the way, most people listening are very familiar with From Dust Till Dawn. Maybe we should just focus on some of the things that you caught on the rewatch that you were not. Yeah, well... One of the things here is like, you know, I, I always knew that Nicotero was in the scene where they introduced the character of Sex Machine, which is played by Tom Savini. Yeah. And the whole crotch rocket thing that happens where uh, Nicotero comes walking up and sits down at the table where Sex Machine is seated. And Savini's sitting there playing with a bullwhip and Nicotero's drinking a bottle of beer and Savini kind of whips part of the, uh, the, the cracker from the bullwhip out wraps it around the neck of the beer bottle and pulls it away and then starts drinking the beer. So <laughs> Nicotero... Can you imagine if you watched that happen in real life yeah. at a bar? So Nic- <laughs> Nicotero's character pulls out a switchblade, you know, and kind of starts, you know, waving it in Savini's face. Savini just kind of looks down at this cod piece that he's wearing with these leather pants. <laughs> Camera pan. And the cod piece opens up and you see this cylinder barrel 
with two fucking, you know, like six round cylinders next to it and everything. And it looks like a dick and balls. Right. And, you know, Savini kind of looks down at it. Nicotero looks down at it. And he just, like, closes his knife, gets up, and walks at away. Least, right. You know, and Savini finishes drinking the beer. So. Which, by the way, there were uh, maybe not dick nuts guns, but uh, there were, like, belt buckle guns yeah. back in the day, like in the Wild West, that for cards you just would go, like, pull out the gun mm-hmm. from your belt and just kill the cheater across yeah. from you. Fucking crazy. Yeah. All right, where was, where's uh, Kurtzman and where's uh, uh, Berger? Okay, so Kurtzman and Berger are truckers that are in the scene when all the strippers turn into vampires and feast on everybody. So they're okay. dead guys. So, you know, our heroes, Savini. Uh, Williamson. George, yeah, George Clooney, Juliette Lewis. Keitel. Uh, Keitel and stuff like that. You know, they kill off the vast majority of the vampire strippers and everything. But all the people that they have killed, all the, the all the vampire strippers have killed, are now starting to revive as vampires. Vampire zombies, exactly. basically, yeah. So, anyway. Dude, what a fucking great movie. Yeah. So, they're going around and they're realizing, well, shit, we're going to have to start killing off the rest of these people because otherwise they're going to turn into vampires and attack us. So, they're going around and staking them. Yeah. Um, well, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the vampire that comes up and bites Savini on the arm is Howard Berger. Wow. Yes, okay. It's Howard Berger. Now, now but which, I, I just want to say, by the way, I didn't rewatch this for our episode okay. because I've seen this movie Well, that's the first time I ca- actually catched, yeah. caught, caught this. Like, I, you know, I've seen the movie a million times. I know who Nicotero, Kurtzman, and Berger are, but I never caught it because- I it remember just, the shot. I remember him yeah. like coming up, uh, and it's almost like it's in reverse or something. Yeah. Like, and it's Howard Berger that bites okay. Tom Savini. So I mean, fitting that you know one of Tom Savini's guys who used to work with him, you know, back in the day on Day of the Dead, which is where where they all can be yeah. got their start. Yeah, uh, you know, puts the bite on Tom Savini. And then when Juliette Lewis, you know, is going around and like she's trying to stake the guy, and she can't do she it. She can't quite stake yeah. the guy. The guy that she's staking. Is, is Berger is or Kurtzman, Kurtzman is Kurtzman, and then all of a sudden he comes back to life, and she's like, "Oh!" and stakes him like seven times. I didn't. Oh, yeah, wow, that's, that's awesome. Kurtzman. That's awesome. That's Kurtzman. All right, what are some other fun things that you found that you uh, found what out are some other things that I didn't notice? Oh, um, when uh, after the Santanico pandemonium dance and everything, and Chet Pussy, which is uh, Cheech Marin's character. Who George Clooney, you know, knocks him out. One of several characters yes, that he, he plays. plays three movies. By the way, characters in the movie. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. this part of it. Not too dissimilar from Alucarda, where the actor in Alucarda who plays the doctor, mm-hmm. the sci- the doctor who is a man of science, also plays the hunchbacked pan demon yeah. and uh, a woman, a nun in drag. Well, so three go. roles, and one of my favorite three role performances is in The Fun House. The yeah. Toby Hooper film, uh, where Kevin, uh, <coughs> oh my God, what's his name? Kevin uh, O'Connor? Yeah. Or Kevin O'Connor. You're plays right. three different kind of. Let's bring back the three role actor. Dr. Strangelove, you know? Yeah, let's. God damn, let's. Where are my actors at that could pull that shit off? There are a few of them. Eddie Murphy can still do it. Jim Carrey can still do it. Jim Carrey can still do it? I think he can still do it. Okay. All right, anyway, so. So, anyway, uh,. Chet Pussy gets knocked out by George Clooney at the beginning of the, well, when they first arrive at the Titty Twister strip club. And um, after the Santanago Pandemonium desk, 
I guess Chet Pussy's character wakes up, comes back inside the bar and is saying, hey, you know, he's talking to Danny Trejo, who's the bartender and saying that, you know, these fuckers, you know, beat me up and barge their way in here and everything. Um, and they're basically trying to throw them out of the bar, or kick their ass and everything. And when uh, George Clooney's character, Seth Gecko and Richie Gecko, Quentin Tarantino's character, pull out their guns. Um, Danny Trejo pulls out a knife and puts a knife straight through Quentin Tarantino's hand that has already got a bullet hole in it from earlier in the movie. Yes. Okay. Gnarly, and it's taped S- off with uh, with uh, duct tape. Yeah. So anyway, uh, all hell breaks loose. Quentin Tarantino pulls the knife out of his stricken hand and then starts stabbing Danny Trejo in the chest, you know, summarily killing him or at least thinking that he's killed him and everything. And then he goes back and he stabs the knife back into the table. And Juliette Lewis is hiding underneath the table. And they do this shot where they do a close-up of her eyes. Yeah. And then they change focus to the knife that's stuck in the table. The knife is dripping glowing green blood. Ooh! Which I had never noticed that before. Probably because I've never watched this movie in high definition. What did you watch? Where did you watch this? Uh, HBO Max, which they were doing it in in 4K. Oh, nice! So I got to see a really, really good transfer. But that was something that I had never noticed before because they, when they do the close up on the knife and everything, I was like, "Ooh, that's green!" And my normally colorblind ass cannot see it, but it was iridescent. So that's that made awesome. it very, very clear. And I was like, "So that tells you right away, there's something weird going on here." She notices, you know, her character notices that there's something different about the blood the blood that he just stabbed you know from this guy that he just stabbed is green Hmm. so that was something that i had never noticed before and i was like oh that's a nice little tidbit there now this is interesting because one of the most famous scenes in the movie is cheech marin's monologue Incredible because it's half memorized, half scripted, yeah. or like half mo- half memorized, half improv. And I was reading along in the screenplay to that. It's crazy because he doesn't get it one hundred percent accurate to yeah. the words. It's like listening to it and reading it. You can kind of hear him hesitating and yeah. then just kind of doing his own thing. Yeah, pretty funny. Um, well, that's what actually makes film. And theater come alive is this this synthesis that happens between, you know, actor and writer. I can only imagine my grandparents watching this movie, <laughs> seeing that scene and going, that George Clooney, what is he up to? Um, what else did you learn that was new about this one? There's a scene where uh, I want to say it's Tom Savini picks up a vampire and 
and slams him down yeah. on the pool table. And then he stakes him on the pool table. And then the vampire goes up in flames and dissolves. Yeah. One of the things I never noticed is that the, the vampire's two eyes roll into the pockets of the, uh, of the pool table. And I had never noticed that before. Awesome. I, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about because I remember thinking like how fucking crazy that was. You know, this was a um, this movie hit on video at a very like inf- like important time in my life, um, along with other films like Cannibal the Musical. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, there, there are a lot of movies. I, w- I won't name them all, but I will say what was awesome about the From Dusk Till Dawn DVD when it came out was it had a second disc. And that second disc had one of the greatest documentaries. Full Tilt Boogie? Yep. Yep. On feature filmmaking ever. And it does this incredible thing where it kind of breaks the fourth wall because, you know, there's this the great scene with John Hawk uh, and, and in, uh, in at the beginning of the movie where they blow up the... Well, first and foremost, that the whole opening scene of this fucking movie is one of the greatest... Bits of duet acting I have ever seen. John Hawk, who is one of the most horribly underrated actors, I think, working today. And the well, late... he did get an Academy Award nomination. Well, that's true, but it took how many years before yeah, that you're happened? Right. He's been in a lot of yeah crazy. I mean, this shit. is probably the first time I remember seeing John Hawk. Yeah, this is where he's kind he of like made an makes impression a, an impression. And his scene with fucking Michael Parks, and Michael fucking Parks in this movie, which is great because, you know, the character of Earl McGraw, um, I remember reading uh, the late Roger Ebert's uh, review of this, which he only gave like two and a half stars on this one. But he went on and on about the opening scene of this movie, saying it was one of the greatest things that he's ever seen. And I agree with him. I thought that, you know, that opening scene was fantastic. The character of Earl McGraw was phenomenal. And Ebert actually said, he goes, now, I wish I had a whole movie about Earl McGraw. You know, this character who winds up getting killed right away, you know, we wish we could have more time with him. Well, ironically enough, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino both individually bring this character back in a couple of their other films. That's right. I still quote the first line of this movie to this day, which is Michael Parks. Yeah. Hot goddamn day. day. I say it all. But he adds motherfucking day. Shit-ass motherfucking day every step of the way. Not in the script. Yeah. That's not in the script. Um, Puking up pigs in a blanket like a sick fucking dog. You know what? You're right. Chris, You. it's funny. Okay. All right. I want to just say a couple of things about that because... In so first of all, there are fucking nerds everywhere who just say, "Well, I wish Quentin Tarantino would make a horror movie one day." And it's almost like they've forgotten that he did a horror movie yeah. already. And he like, and I'm not saying that From Dusk Till Dawn is like the greatest movie ever made, but like, it's the greatest mm-hmm. drive-in movie ever <laughs> made. <laughs> Where do you go from there? You know, like what he has done is he has put horror elements in each of his films. Yeah. Because he knows better. He knows. He knows better than to just make a straight-up horror film. And he... Well, he doesn't like to repeat himself. No. And he made one with this. But what's fascinating is... I do remember when this movie came out that it was maligned. Mm -hmm. And it was written off the way, like, True Romance is written off. Like... Criminal. 
where they just go, well, Tarantino's a talented writer, but it's a shame he does all that genre stuff, which is fuck, fuck off. From Dust Till Dawn's first half, the 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 crime drama, mm-hmm. the crime not drama, the crime thriller, yeah, is well, it's literally peak Tarantino. I mean, it's like he's operating at the peak of his um, young, enthusiastic power, and the fact that he puts <laughs> puts well, it and into let's this not movie. forget too that we're pairing up these ideas and these words with the images and the editing of Robert Rodriguez. That's the thing. Like and you know Desperado has is a great companion film to this because yeah. the vibes are of the same mold, you know. And Tarantino's in both. And Tarantino's in both. And Tarantino's hand is in in Desperado and Cheech is in both. more than just his one cameo scene which is one of the best parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. But I can see I can I love that Tarantino like how cuz critics love him. Critics yeah. love his movies. And I, the fact that he, well, I love horror shit. Like, that's what he's into. Yeah. And he makes this movie at the height of his power, essentially. Um, everybody's waiting for his second or his third feature. What's yeah. it, What the fuck is it going to be? And he does this. And there is that scene at the beginning yeah, but, with, well, uh, yeah, with I, Michael Parks and John Hawk that yeah. is undeniably, whether you like horror movies or not, an awesome Scene on par with like scenes in Inglorious Bastards, where it's just like two actors talking to each other, two handers that are so. It's not on par with fucking David Mamet. It it is, of course it is, of course it is. And then I can see why people would be like people like Roger Ebert would be like, well, and then he turns into vampire bullshit. Yeah, I get how, but I love that he is like trolling people in a way. Like yeah, it's very jarring critics. for some people, but you know, for, trolling for people like you and I. You know that 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 twist right there. I mean, that's part it's of the gold. fun. It's it's the fun of the movie. Yeah. He knows what's up. Um, it's a better drive-in movie than you know Death Proof. You know, it's it's. I like Death Proof. I a lot. I get it. I get it. But this movie is tighter. Uh, it's it's more um, uh, format friendly, like yeah. structure friendly. Um. It just plays different. It hits different. Yeah. And by the time that back half happened, I'm really interested to read the screenplay. You want to borrow that? I wouldn't mind. Yeah, go because ahead. Because I'm curious to know. Just let me take a picture know, of you with it. I'm curious to know um, how. Is it posing? Okay. Yes. I'm curious to know how the what he wrote for the back half of the movie that's just a special effects fucking showcase. Yeah. Oh, it's K and B. Like I want to know what he wrote versus what they all came up with together. I'll guarantee you that what happened was is that you know they sat around and fucking Kurtzman, Berger, and Nicotero all sat there with Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino and said, "Dude, we can do this for you. Why don't we try doing this?" Because one of the things that I was I was racking my brain. Um, There is a vampire creature in. I know what you're talking about. In the deleted scenes? No, not in the deleted scenes. Oh. It's actually, it's in the movie where they start to have their, their standoff and everything, and you've got all the vampires. She's in the front. Down. She's got the mouth in her it, stomach. Yeah, exactly. That's I'm a deleted tra- scene. I'm the tra- mouth bitch. 
Was it Mouth Bitch? Yeah. Okay. I was trying to remember what the name, because they, they had a very cute nickname, and I thought it was like the Cunt Bitch or something mouth like bitch. that. She was Mouth Bitch? Yeah, because her stomach, yeah. she's got these big, big saggy, saggy titties, and her stomach opens up, and it bites somebody's head off. And it's in the deleted scenes. Um, you can watch it. Well, so there's there's more with her, yeah. is what you're talking but about. But it's yeah. not... She's in the movie. It's not... I, I remember in the deleted it's like, it was wise that they cut it, yeah. because it's kind of like slow in slow going as opposed to everything else that happens but i love that it's kind of like well, a let peter me, jackson let me throw this out here too is that you know the humor in this movie yeah because this movie gives you all sorts of stuff i mean like it gives you hard drama i mean th- that opening scene is hard fucking drama i i don't know that i would say drama dude well the the the, the tense you know the 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 anxiety that is produced in that opening scene yeah a thriller i mean it's like it's like Inglorious Bastards, like the scene where he comes Dude, in. That is fucking drama, right then and there. Uh, okay. It's purest right. form. That's right. what drama is. Fair enough. Okay, so that tension that you feel, okay. where, oh shit, I would you say know, it's suspense. Okay, but it's still drama. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's. I don't know why I'm arguing with you. About yeah. <laughs> Just because if we agree on everything, the show's fucking stupid. Dude, quit splitting pubes. All right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, I mean, it gives you the drama, okay? It gives yeah. you the horror. It gives you... Like, for instance, the relationship between Seth Gecko and Richie, okay? Mm-hmm. It's some pretty fucking heartfelt shit. Like, you know, when uh, when Seth Gecko comes back from scoping out the border... And he's left his brother Richie, who we know is a sex offender, in addition to being a fucking crazy ass murderer. Yeah, he's a and stuff. Complete he's lunatic. left him in the hotel room with this hostage that they've taken, this 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 bank teller, Gloria, and everything, who's like the mother of four kids and stuff. Oh, God, and yeah. He goes out the least Hollywood looking actress asks, you could cast. You know, he asks her, Hey, you want to come watch TV with me on the bed and stuff? It's like they're watching TV and shit. Hey, so and then we cut back me. to uh Seth Gecko coming back in from scoping at the border. He's got two bags of big kahuna burgers, yeah. which you know yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always love the the in world references there and everything. And then he you know, he's going through, he's putting the burger in, in Richie's hand, and then he's standing there in it's this great fucking cinematic scene where George Clooney is looking at the two burgers and everything, and he's looking at both of them. He's like, wait, I got two. And all of a sudden, oh, shit, where's the woman? And this is Rodriguez uh, Rodriguez coming into play with yeah. the editing. Yeah. So he says, you know, where is she? She's in the other room. What the fuck she's doing in the other room? And he goes, I don't know. She was, you know, in there. So he opens up the door, and it's just this close-up of Clooney's face, and then these subliminal flashes, these little couple-frame edits that are put in of the bloodbath yeah. that has taken place in the room. And then, of course... And uh, that's different from how I think Tarantino would do it. Definitely, yeah. This is, That's how Rodriguez yes. does it, and that's the... Boy, were they a match made in fucking heaven, hell, Absolutely. or what? Yeah, no, I, I those they two... must have just had a they must have just had an ego blowout because those two are a hell of a fucking team, man. Definitely, definitely kismet. Like they are like uh, just souls, like freaking kindred frack. souls. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point that I was trying to make though is like the emotional resonance that exists in this movie that people I don't think pay a lot of attention to. 
Um, Seth, the older brother who knows what a complete and utter fuck up his younger brother is, but he's still his brother and he still loves him. He still loves him. So there's this scene where they, that Rodriguez has framed the doorway and you can see Gloria who's been murdered. Like Seth is, or Richie Gecko has put a fucking pillow on her head, probably after raping her and stuff like that, put like five bullets in her head and everything. There's blood and entrails and shit just all over the fucking room. But you're seeing this through the adjoining room. And then up against the door frame is Clooney, who's smacked his brother around. Why the fuck do you do these fucking things? Is it me? What did I do? And then finally he just gives his brother a hug and you watch as Quentin Tarantino's character just kind of slumps down. And there's the fucking, you know, love there. You know that this guy loves his brother and he knows that his brother is fucking bad news. Yeah. And all through the rest of the movie, you know, he's constantly trying to kind of keep his brother off of Juliette Lewis. Yeah. You know, or is trying to, uh, you know, when shit really kind of, you know, hits down and his brother is transformed into a vampire. And he even tries to look at his brother with loving eyes. This is something that I I thought differently about. Okay. There's a scene where... Tarantino's character Richie has morphed into a vampire. A weird Frankenstein actually, vampire. There's a caricature of yeah Frankenstein looking vampires best way, but the on the title page there's actually oh the, weird the, yeah yeah um, which is actually a sketch that Rodriguez did. Rodriguez did yeah, that. He did that. Um, but uh, anywho, Clooney, but then he he switches. He sees him. Clooney looks at him and he sees his brother, but his brother's got fangs and fucked. He up just eyes. looks like a normal, like a like a lost boys vampire kind uh, of, kind of sorta. But this is something that occurred to me: is that when he looks at his brother, he still sees a predator because he's not. He, he is a a a a lupine hunter. He's got yeah. uh, his his lower fangs. He doesn't right the idea, Chris. Brilliant, yeah. Because in most movies, so, that scene is the person seeing their loved one, the and way they that see they remember seeing a, them. But he sees he him sees as him, a he fucking still wolf. sees him as a fucking predator, and he knows Ooh. that because I mean he tries to force you know they're they're getting ready to kill you know the vampire Richie, and he stops them and threatens them and says no, don't fucking touch him. It's like he's not your brother anymore. He's not your brother anymore. And then he looks at his brother. And he still sees most of, you know, the monster's been stripped away, but there's still a monster there. So Seth recognizes my brother, whether he's a vampire or not, is always going to be a monster. And if anybody's going to take him out, it has to be me. Yeah, dude. There's a certain emotional resonance that is established pretty early on in the movie and carries throughout, you know, the rest of the film as long as that character's on screen and i think people really kind of sell that short clooney's acting in this movie is fantastic i mean he proves that he's a fucking movie star by the way this movie has one of my favorite uh comedic beats maybe in a movie ever which is the end of the movie when they're they just kind of stumble out into the daylight and cheech Marin's third character shows up what were they psychos <laughs> he, were they psychos or something? Yeah, and he's like, they weren't psychos. Psychos do not explode when sunlight touches them. <laughs> but I love that he's and he's like, oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's yeah. so good. Um, uh, look, I I I think we could talk about from dusk till dawn. It's easy until to talk dawn, about dude. it I until mean, right dawn. Now it's it's you know it's pushing midnight. But this is going to be a long episode. Uh, I, so. I think we should wrap it up. Um, okay. From Dust Till Dawn, 
is a drive-in movie in spirit. It it was designed that way, I feel like, from the get-go. Um, it's filmmakers operating at the fucking peak of their skill and talent, doing energetic, different movies. Now, the thing about Tarantino is he's, you, you know, his movies are getting, in a way, almost better. It's arguable, but almost better. Like he Refined. has, he's been like such a consistent. It's so weird in comparison to the great filmmakers of the seventies that we talked about earlier, the Friedkins or the Spielbergs. I wouldn't say that those guys. Have, Their oeuvre actually kind of starts to plateau at a certain. In point. a way, yeah, and you, it, like you know, I go okay. Well, Spielberg, the same man who made Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders, is you know, is making War Horse and Lincoln and, uh, uh, you know, AI. And I would never in a million years, at the Post or Bridge of Spies, I would never in a million years say that those are bad films. But you just kind of go, the, the dude that we loved has kind of vanished. Well, he's, he's matured. He's a different man now than he was. And you know, I get it. Now. And Tarantino's the same way. And his, But his movies have matured with him but in because he's such a nerd because yeah. he so clearly loves horror and shit that he his love of the genre has never dissipated the dude is making movies like once upon a time in hollywood which is a hangout movie yeah but features scenes of horror <laughs> but run through a different lens it, you know and I don't, you know, and Rodriguez history too. That's the other and thing. revisionist history, of course, which is brilliant. And like Rodriguez is, you know, I think he's he's in a different position than Tarantino. Tarantino's in an elite position. Rodriguez is well. A, Rodriguez is more is, of a maverick. He kind of he took the George Lucas route. I mean, I think Lucas had an amazing influence on Robert Rodriguez as a filmmaker when he introduced Robert Rodriguez to digital filmmaking. I mean, really, Rodriguez, in much the same way that George Lucas did, pushed the envelope with what can be done with virtual filmmaking. Yeah, and whether it you know holds up or not, he was you know pushing. Yeah, things. on the vanguard of that, and he he still is to this day. I mean, I haven't really. Well, yeah, kept Los, up. Los Hooligans, his company, you know, transformed into Troublemaker Studios and everything, and he started making kids movies. You know, he he became a dad. And Dude, I saw Spy Kids? Kids 3D in theaters, uh, and by the way, we were totally naked in the theater. That's a story unto itself. You know what? You'll if have you... to tell me that story later. And I'll tell, I'll tell you what, I'll tell all of our Patreon subscribers that story. Okay, cool. You'll only hear it there. Yeah. Um, it's weird, because I have not kept up with Rodriguez as much. I feel like the last Rodriguez movie I saw was uh, Battle Angel Alita. Yep, I think that's the last thing of his I Which saw I love, I, I like that movie a lot. I haven't seen it again. But I saw it in the theaters, and I had a great experience with it. Eye candy. Yeah, it really was. Big eye candy. Yeah. Literally big, big eyes. Big eye candy. Yeah. Um, From Dust Till Dawn is our fifth and final film in our... Sico de Mayo Especial. I'm really pleased with the five movies we chose. Me too. I feel like we have uh, maybe gone against the grain a little bit, and maybe to some of our listeners... <laughs> You know, you know, these might not be for everyone, but if you are wanting to explore some different sides of cinema uh, and Mexican cinema in particular, 
you could do much worse. They deserve attention. They absolutely deserve attention and uh, uh, and reevaluation and fucking again, Quentin, dude. Let's let's get some of these things re-released. Give me uh, Curse of the Crying Woman on HD 4K. Yeah. Give me Alucarda in 4K, please. I don't know about the Santa movies. I, I think, like, keep those as shitty quality as yeah. possible because it kind of adds to the they vibe. Let's do a box set. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> yes, let's get a box set of, of Santa. F- God damn. So I'm thrilled with this, man. Um, I, I, I love this. Uh, this has been a, a great celebration of mm-hmm. uh, Sico de Mayo, and um, I, I'm glad we got to do this together, Chris. Me too, man. Hey, before we, uh, we wrap things up, why don't we... Um, uh, give our Patreon shout-outs a, a, a little cred. Let's do it, brother. Okay. So, uh, all right. Let's just say hi. So, guys, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I want to give a, a shout-out to... Here, how about we alternate back and forth yeah, here? Yeah, sounds good. Um, uh, welcome to the Dead City Drive-In Mutant Family, you mutant you, Michael Gable Marinell. Woohoo! And also our good madman, Matthew Yovino, who's been a guest on the show. Uh, hey, we've got a great maniac in Jack Holloway. Jack wow, Holloway. how we cool know that is that? Guy. And also another madman, my good buddy, Dan Marins. Hey, guys, thank you so much for uh, pledging, for being uh, a mutant maniac or madman. It means a lot to us. We're going to keep this shit going. If you are on Patreon, guess what? We've got a next another episode coming out in a week. Uh, and it is our horror game night, um, and it's a lot of fun. We have a yeah. special guest, uh, uh, Mr. Chris Rutherford, and we have a lot of fun. It's a battle to the death of horror trivia, full-length episode that you can only get on Patreon. And does Chris make everyone his bitch? Tune in next week to find out. Yeah, which Chris makes whom a bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, also, uh, uh, we'll be back on our regular schedule uh, uh, in two weeks from now. So with- remember, actually, Dead City Drive-In fans, whether you're a Patreon subscriber or not, you are still going to get your 10 episodes per season. We were not changing that. But it does behoove you to become a Patreon sponsor because you get almost a whole other season of content. Woo, baby! Yes. I love it. So I should just sign up and start paying. Yeah, Jesus Jeff, Christ. Yeah. Listen to myself. I, 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 I only, I will only, unless I subscribe, both of us, unless we, yeah, <laughs> make we won't, we won't be able to listen to we'll ourselves. We'll never be able to listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, well, uh, thanks, guys, so much. Thank you to our mutants, maniacs, and madmen. We really appreciate it, and let's keep it going. Um, and Chris, I, look, I don't know about you, but those were five fucking amazing flicks. Mexican filmmakers crank out some amazing driving fare. I, it blows my mind. Uh, sorry. Also, is there any of that mezcal left? Please don't bogart. Yeah, look, that there's shit, a man. swig or two in there. Here, okay. take it. All right. Man, I don't ever remember getting so cracked on mezcal. This is some wacky small batch shit. You know what, dude? This has been the coolest Cinco de Mayo I've had, like probably ever. And I, I, I will say, uh, while the Tex-Mex was pretty shitty. <laughs> You get it? Is it shitty? Yeah, I get no, it. Our, our pinata surprise has been, um, well, I guess Sean Connery would say illuminating. <laughs> Good call, man. Um, we should probably actually definitely look into scoring some more irradiated mezcal. Wait, 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 wait. Do you hear that? 
Wait. Uh. Uh. Yes. I think I. I think I do. Shh. Where the fuck? Where's that coming from? Excuse me. What the? Down here. Oh, uh, is that? Yes. Um. In the bottle. <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding. Yes. Um. I was wondering if I might have a word with you. Look, I've, 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 I've danced with the green fairy inside a glass of absinthe, but never have I had a conversation with a tequila worm. Are you fucking seeing yeah, this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I, uh, hello, little talking tequila worm. Uh, please tell me you're just a figment of our irradiated ir- imaginations, right? For your information, dear sir, I am indeed every bit as real as you or your compatriot there. I thoughts and feelings, which you have done an impeccable job of injuring, I should say. Cinco de Mayo has just taken a detour into the strange and unusual. Uh, well, honestly, Chris, did you forget? Come on, did you forget where you are? It's kind of par for the course in this drive-in. Hey, uh, look, uh, Mr. Worm, we're very sorry if we offended you. It was absolutely not intentional. We're just, a, you know, we're a little, well, we've just had a little bit to drink tonight. So I should say so. And on such a day as Cinco de Mayo, let me ask you a serious question. In your inebriated ineptitude, have you forgotten to do something? Something rather important? Well, uh, not that I can think of. Hey, that's uncalled for. Look, I know we're a little intoxicated. Okay, make that a lot intoxicated. Eat me. Yeah, well, like I was saying, there is no reason to be rude. Eat me! No, dude, it's a tequila worm. I think it wants us to eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Eat me! Yeah, no, uh, trying to cut down diabetes and all. Fuck no, dude, that's disgusting. I don't think it's going to take no for an answer. rocket launcher from the canon films episode kind of an odd way to end a cinco de mayo episode just go with it dude but what do we do now why don't we just wait here for a little while see what happens wish i had another bottle of mezcal shut up (laughs) well that wraps up another episode of dead city driving our season four premiere I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And remember, at this drive-in, if the cars are rocking, it doesn't mean somebody's fucking. They're probably getting murdered. For more Dead City Drive-In content, head over to patreon.com slash deadcitydrive-in to get episodes ad-free, monthly bonus episodes, and feature-length commentaries chosen by you, the Dead City Denizens. That's patreon.com slash deadcitydrive-in. Want to have words with the management? Email us at deadcitydrive-in at gmail.com. And hey, why not rate and review Dead City Drive-In on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show and splatter just the right amount of slime and sleaze onto our mutant-friendly drive-in street. Dead City.
under 17 not admitted without parent.